Aren't TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. Welcome to tonight's episode of the Made for TV Mayhem Show. Our topic, cars and pornography. It's going to be a hot one. It's We're going to put the pedal to the metal so hard. You're not going to believe it. It's rated X. Take the children out of the room. Turn around the lights. Get yourself a Chardonnay. And join us as we talk about Death Car on the Freeway and The Gladiator starring the hunkalicious Ken Wall. Dan, are you ready? I am ready. Let's do this. Vroom, vroom. <laughs> Yours is so much better than mine. I don't know. I don't know how to be sexy with cars because I don't know anything about cars. So here's just a little. Here's a little disclaimer about me. I own a, a Volkswagen Beetle, and the reason why I own a Beetle is because it's the only car I can differentiate from other cars. <laughs> yeah, you know? that sounds. That sounds it looks yeah. different. Yep, that sounds yeah. right. Yeah. So. <laughs> So I don't fully understand car porn, mm. but it is a thing. And I think we saw a lot of it in the two movies we picked tonight, um, yes. which I already mentioned, which are Death Car on the Freeway and Gladiator. So I guess, Stan, do you have anything to say about cars before I get started with my little brief history of car culture? Uh, I am not a car guy, but uh, my, my stepdad is a car guy, and he loves cars, and he spent most of his life around cars and tried to teach me about cars. And I can't begin to describe the numerous ways I've disappointed him in the 30-odd years I've known him. So so let's, I guess, talk about car <laughs> culture, please. Oh, wait, this reminds me of a story. So my dad knew nothing about cars, but my dad was Mexican, and he and Mexicans are stereotyped as, as knowing things about cars, having lowriders and things like that. And so he would take me to the car place whenever my car would break down because they would always try to swindle me when I came in. And the, But my dad would show up with his bandana around his head and his little, his little sleeveless shirts and everything. And he and they would be like, oh, he must work on cars. And I'm not kidding. And so one day my transmission went out, but I didn't realize that's what it was. And I managed to get it home. And we <laughs> we lifted the hood, mm-hmm. and we looked. So the transmission's under the car, which I realized later. We looked at it like we were going to know if anything was different <laughs> by staring at under the hood. And we yeah. stared under the hood for a couple of minutes, and then we both looked at each other. And we just shrugged our shoulders, and we're like, we have to go see the mechanic. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I did have, um, when I, uh, during college, I drove a, a K car, like a Plymouth Reliant, little red car, and... I remember driving home from, I think, the, the, the first ever Borders bookstore I ever went to in my life, which was in, like, downtown Rochester area. And I was driving home on whatever the highway is, because we didn't have freeways in Rochester, New York. We had highways. And my my stepdad had just replaced um, the thermostat and some sort of coolant stuff. And I get about five minutes into the drive, and suddenly I'm overheating like crazy. Well, the thermostat says I'm overheating. So I pull over and I call AAA and they get me out of there. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm expecting the car to blow up. 
because it's it like went to hot immediately and I'm oh my god I don't know what to do and turns out my my stepdad came to me like a day or two later and said oh we put the thermostat in backwards so it was reading backwards and I said is that a thing apparently it was a thing so <laughs> So oh, wow, I never heard of that. So I never heard of it either. I've never heard of it since he could have been lying to me. But yes, that was just just like being on like I was on the huge like uh, uh turning off ramp going from one highway to another and I looked down to the thermostat and it was on hot. I was like, "What? I've only been going for like 3 minutes. How could it be on hot?" It was a it was a bad day at, you know, that freeway highway sorry oops i'm thinking about i'm thinking about death car on the freeway yeah i was thinking bad day at black rock but that's, that's something what else. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let me just tell you a little bit about cars and culture and then i've got this kind of essay i'm going to read and hopefully it, i won't sound like an idiot when i'm reading it because i have never read it out loud and it's a little lengthy but i think it captures america's fascination with cars and television and it also says some really offensive things that we're going to talk about too so but let me just get you started by letting you know that car culture is basically a phenomenon that dates back to the 1950s um, when vehicles became more affordable and people began moving out into the suburbs uh, for teens. And interestingly enough, we haven't really covered teen car movies, although there must be some made for TV. I just can't think of any off the top of my head. But for teens, it was a sign of mobility. And um, it's what brought on the advent, of course, of cruising, Oh, which is actually addressed in Death Car. I, you know what? I wrote that note and I don't know what I'm referencing now. Um, but they do talk about it in, in Death Car on the Freeway. Getting a driver's license was seen as a rite of passage. Um, and from America's Love Affair with Cars by Lee Donaldson, um, in their book, Cruisin', Car Culture in America, authors Ken Witzel and Kent Bash argue that mobile, mobile contraptions have been part of a child's world from birth, from being wheeled to the mother's hospital room in a gurney, to the car ride from the hospital, to being walked through the city park in the obligatory an obligatory baby carriage, the child in motion, the child is in motion on wheels. The authors contend that even in the carriage, a child is somewhat on display and that the carriage itself, as well as cars um, and the parents that drive them, become outward indications of the parents' prosperity, social standing, style, and personality. So you can see that there's this idea of movement that is uh, sort of inbred in us from a very young age. Inbred, I used. I don't think that's the right word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. At the time, it seemed that owning a car was largely associated with having the physical mobility to leave the congestion of the city and to take a vacation away from the urban setting. At least these were the terms in which uh, my parents spoke of in reference to the car. This is the author talking. To them, it represented a means of escape or recreation. The world outside our immediate lives was made more accessible through the uh, conveyance of an automobile so and like he said earlier the make and model of a car represented someone's uh, prosperity so it was you know a, a social standing sign um according to nicholas zerberg in his essay oh what a feeling the literature of the car the car is indeed one of the first things you see when you approach most american cities and towns it is a potent image a mirror of our society and reflects not just our buying habits but how we see ourselves in the world around us so cars are really important there's been a lot of movies about cars, and a lot of those movies about cars were made by Hal Needham. So that works out really well that he did one of these films tonight. So something I didn't mention is we're talking about car porn. We're talking about two movies that are about cars. But we're also talking about two movies directed by people who normally make theatrical films, mm. which is also really interesting because Abel Ferreira really didn't make TV movies after this. And I don't know that Hal Needham really did either. And so this is these are really kind of signature things that happened, oddball moments in their careers. Um, and it makes more sense to me that Hal Needham would make a movie about cars. Maybe not so much Abel Ferrer, but we can talk about that um, 
as we go along with this podcast. But I found this essay by a woman named Katie Kelly. Uh, I think it's called, um, I know what it's called. I'm sorry, it came from a book, and I think I don't have the title of the book here. But it's called My Prime Time. It says, TV Discovered Cars. It's been retreads galore. So this is a little long, but bear with me because she brings up a lot of good points, and she also says something that is going to upset me immensely, and I'm going to argue about it. So here we go. In the beginning, we all walked. That must have got very boring because the next thing you know, someone found a horse and people discovered they would rather ride from point A to point B than walk in days of yore. Then came the wheel and the internal combustion engine and steel belted radials. And before you knew it, someone put them all together and they spelled car. Thus began North America's love affair with the automobile. Then, because of various social pressures that existed in the 1920s and the 1930s, that affair was formalized and became the marriage of man and machine. Women were invented in the early 1970s by Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, so one can assume that phrase now applies to us as well. It is said that Charles Duria invented the American automobile. I don't think that's true. I think television invented the automobile sometime during the fall of 1975 when we met Starsky and Hutch. That cop show starred Paul Michael Glazer Starsky and David Solis Hutch and a red and white 1974 Ford Torino with California license plates. That series inspired a veritable assembly line of cars on television. There are now so many cars on television, Primetime has has started a, a, to look at Discount Sam's out in Santa Monica. Television is like the Long Island Expressway, a parking lot, wall-to-wall cars. It got so bad one week in 1979 to 1980 that we had cars as stars. It started with The Last Convertible. That's an important film to remember. Everybody remember that title? A six-hour miniseries starring a 1939 Packard that came equipped with white sidewall tires and five Harvard undergraduates. Over the course of six hours, war was declared, battles fought, children born, peace treaty signed, hair went gray, but the Packard endured. But that was the class act of that week's auto show, let me tell you. The rest of it, strictly recall material. One particular noteworthy night on CBS started with California Fever, and then, talk about automatic transition, CBS rolled right into Death Car on the Freeway, a made-for-TV movie starring a recreational vehicle. The alleged plot, a crazed California driver who got his kicks by heading to the freeway and slamming into the other cars, preferably those driven by beautiful young women. This kind of behavior calls for a two-hour movie. I know people who can accomplish that just getting out of their driveways in the morning. Death Car on the Freeway also starred Shelley Hack, a.k.a. Charlie's 1989-1980 Angel. She reportedly played an ambitious young reporter, although there is some controversy in this area since there are those who insist that to play a character, one must do at least a bare minimum of acting. This is where I start to get mad. She did not. She did turn in an interesting perf- performance. See Miss Hack impersonate a TV news reporter. See Miss Hack conduct a TV interview without a microphone. See Miss Hack conduct a TV interview without a camera. Nice work if you can get it. Meanwhile, there was the usual assortment of non-car series that still managed to get their fair share of autom- automotive parts. Indeed, everywhere you looked, it was cars. We had car chases and car crashes and car pileups, cars to the right of us and cars to the left of us. So before I continue, that was one paragraph. She, the author of this essay, and I think it's a pretty good essay, still manages to say she reportedly played an ambitious young TV reporter, which leads me to believe she didn't see the movie. And then she goes on to be really derogatory to Shelley Hack. And that oh. really upset me when I read this because that's wrong, isn't it? Yes. And I'm going to talk about Shelley Hack's career here in a little bit when we get to the end of Death Car on the Freeway. But that really pissed me off because mm-hmm. that's she's really had an uphill battle when she did Charlie's Angels. And her performances 
afterwards were much better than Charlie's Angels. I'm not going to lie that that wasn't her best year on television. But I think that's unfair to just assume because she's a beautiful woman that was on Charlie's Angels that she can't act. Um, Farrah Fawcett, guys. So anyway, <laughs> let's get back to the essay. I'm going to have more to say about Shelley Hack later. Um, so Bo and Luke Duke, the Dukes of Hazard, have a car. A stripped-down, laid-back drag racer, zero one one on the drag circuit, Boss Hogg, the Duke's family's nemesis, has a white Cadillac, Cadillac convertible that resembles a cross between the Flying Nun and a supersonic jet. On one episode last season, the Dukes were in hot pursuit. The chase scene starred the Dukes' drag racer, two squad cars, both crippled in some form or another during crash sequences, and a pickup truck. All were in hot pursuit of Loretta Lynn's tour bus. Loretta Lynn's tour bus is nothing sacred. Unfortunately, success breeds not only contempt, from some of us anyway, but imitations. If the Dukes of Hazard could star two good old boys, a gallon hot pants and a stripped-down dragster, and make it into the top ten, why, ABC, could come... Uh, could come on with bad cats. This starred two urban cowboys, a pistol pack and mama, and a fast car, all working for the Los, Los Angeles Police Department. Like Dukes before them, bad cats centered on the hero's car. It careened, it squealed, it screeched, it crashed. Fortunately for all of us, so did the series after only a few episodes. Considering the cultural importance now being accorded the automobile, perhaps this is the time to bring back one of TV's golden oldies. Remember my mother the car? Guy goes to use car lot. Sits in a 1928 Porter. Car starts talking to him. It's his mother. Interestingly, since it was a good old mom, there was never any car crashes. There was car trouble, though. It only lasted one season. And the most ridiculous encounter with the automobile came during the return of the ill-fated Battlestar Galactica series of AB. Uh, series on ABC. ABC canceled that series after one disastrous oh season, but brought it back as a as a series of specials in early 1980. And in one special, the Battlestar tripped backwards through time and ended up back on Earth with, you got it, a lot of car chases. Not only is nothing sacred, it isn't very original either. But by far the most creative use of the automobile comes in the opening credits of The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, Dan. In less than 60 seconds, a grand total of 18 cars, one tractor trailer, and an earth mover are either destroyed or totally immobilized. Of course, maybe this is just a, a case of chickens coming home to give us a pox. North America has had, and still has, that so-called love affair with the automobile. Gas stations can close on Sunday, prices can break $2 a gallon, and still there are millions of people who will jump in their cars and drive two blocks or two miles or two century, or two countries for a six-pack or a loaf of bread. Courting, st- courting is still done in cars. Babies are conceived and sometimes delivered in the backseat of cars. That's a very common TV trope. Affairs of the heart and heart attacks occur in cars. We live and we die in cars, and television knows this. Television is also smart enough to know it can sell everything from sex to violence to scripts without, pilot- to- without plots by focusing everything on the automobile. So here we are, in the midst of an energy crisis, that we have too much of an entire season devoted to the automobile. It is beginning to look as if primetime television is made possible by a grant from Mobile Oil. Actually, the possibilities are intriguing. How about a a Morkin motor car? Or for disaster fans, we could have Carport 80. So obviously this was written in 1980 by a woman named Katie Kelly. It's from a book called My Primetime, which was published by Seaview Books. um, And I believe it's Canadian... um, it had a Canadian distribution, too. So most of this essay is pretty interesting because she encapsulates that sort of era of the car, which would have been the time that Death Car on the Freeway aired, obviously, because she cites it here in her um, essay. Gladiator came a little later, I would say, maybe after 
we had our love affair with the car on TV ended, although you could argue not because that show, The Highwayman. Do you remember The Highwayman? I vaguely remember The Highwayman. Yeah, it's a it's a very short, short-lived TV series with Jacko. Do you remember Jacko, the Australian guy who did like the battery <laughs> ads? Yes. Okay, I remember it more now. And I think the guy who played Flash Gordon, Sam Jones. Sa- yes. Yes. And they're highwaymen, which I'm, I think they're bounty hunters or something, and they traverse the freeways. But it's weird because it's like late 80s, and it looks late 80s, but their car is futuristic. So huh. it's like they use the top of a helicopter for the cab, and then it's oh. like a diesel truck. Sure. I'm in. Yeah, it's but it, and the, so the freeways are like dystopian, but then the cities are like 1987. Mm. Wow. I, yeah. I, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so the cars that were used in TV movies, um, I made a short list, would be Duel, of course, Night Terror, which we've covered both so far, California Kid, which somebody mentioned in the feedback, Drive Hard, Drive Fast, which is about a race car driver uh, chased by an axe-wielding maniac, I think. Um, Carpool, which is a comedy with Peter Scolari, which I've seen, of course. Wheels of Terror and Trucks. So... Those are our car movies. I don't know how intriguing that was for people to listen to, but I hope they got something out of it. So that's yeah. just to say that car culture was really big on television in the 80s. And um, we're going to prove it to you because we're going to go right into Death Car on the Freeway. Dan, are you ready? I think I am. <sighs> <Okay>. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Death Car on the Freeway. Uh, th- this this actually isn't going to be very lengthy, uh, this um, plot breakdown. Wait, first, Dan. Dan. Yeah. You shouldn't, when we're talking about car porn, you might not want to talk about how short or long something is. That was my mistake. That was, I got caught up in that essay you were reading and I started thinking about Sheriff Lobo and BJ and the bear. There you go. What, where, what? Oh, so Death Car on the Freeway. Uh, (laughs) The the movie begins with Morgan Brittany. She is going to a, uh, her character named Becky Lyons is going to a, she's got a a day part on Barnaby Jones and she's going to Van Nuys. Now I live in Van Nuys, so she was going around here somewhere and she gets on the freeway and everything's awesome until a van uh, with um, tinted windows, they say one-way glass throughout the movie, comes after her and basically begins chasing her and almost knocks her off of the freeway. Doesn't do it, but almost does. And she's interviewed later on, yeah, this guy was trying to kill me, this guy was trying to kill me, and people are a little bit iffy about it. Becky, I want you to tell us exactly what happened, and I want you to tell us just in your own words. Now, there's a lot of noise out here, so please speak up. I still can't believe it. I mean, there was this blue van, and it just came after me, that's all, for no reason. What do you mean, came after you? Well, I, I wanted to get off down at the Van Nuys Boulevard exit, and uh, I'm doing this Barnaby Jones, and I had an 8 o'clock call. Anyway, I, I tried to get off at the exit, and this van cut me off. I cut in front of him, and, and he went crazy. I mean, I've never seen anybody drive like that before. And uh, anyway, I he, he cut me off at the exit, and then he ran me off the road. He was trying to kill me. I know he was. I mean, one of those officers over there, he said that if I hadn't hit it an angle, I would have been dead. What makes you think he was trying to kill you? Well, it was the way he drove. I mean, nobody's ever driven like that. It's like like some kind of a wild animal after you. It was a car. We, we, we cut from her being interviewed to um, a bunch of folks at a local um, L.A. TV station, and it's Shelley Hack... Frank Gorshin, 
Jeez, is it Barbara Rush? I think is it? And, yeah. And and I for, and I forget the guy. There's another guy there who I'm forgetting, and I feel bad about that. But and they're all sitting watching this interview. And what happens is, is most of the people in the room are like, whatever, she's an actress, she's just trying to get her five minutes. But uh, Jeanette Clausen, who is Shelley Hack, is really kind of caught up by it and kind of intrigued by it. The movie is basically, I won't go too crazy on it so we can dive into our chat about it, but the movie is basically, she begins to investigate these um, sort of hit-and-run strange events that happen out in the freeway that all seem to kind of involve a van and one-way glass and possibly loud, crazy fiddle music on an 8-track. And she talks with... uh, she talks with a tennis player. She talks with some other people. She talks with the um, the mom from Silent Night, Deadly Night, who gets burned horribly by this guy. And as she is trying to piece together what the heck is going on with this van that is on basically the Ventura Freeway, which is the 101, uh, which seems to be going after women, um, uh, you, you get a mix of these crazy stunt sequences with the in broad daylight with the van and cars on the on the busy freeways mixed with um Jeanette's character um investigating and getting involved in like um TV news politics and getting involved with her I don't think she he's her ex-husband I think she's he's still why do I keep calling saying George Hamilton uh, why do I keep saying she for George Hamilton uh George Hamilton uh is her um, husband slash ex-husband and he's always showing up and he's a news guy too and he's always showing up and trying to get her to come back with him and and it's just this and Peter Graves is there as the police officer who doesn't believe anything anyone says and it, it, it it's it's basically it's a, it's Jeanette investigating what's going on trying to find out because he begins to kill women and he begins she's trying to find out what's going on what is is it one man is it several vans what's going on there are multiple uh, different colors of the van different license plates um mixed in with sort of her interpersonal relationships at the at the TV station her arguing with Peter Graves and her strange encounters with George Hamilton and um i i i guess I, I guess i'll kind of end it there but it's basically her investigations into trying to stop this man from killing women on the freeways of Los Angeles and yes Sid Haig does show up at the end boom that's death car <laughs> on the freeway yay this movie is kind of a really interesting curio for a lot of different reasons. One, because it was directed by Helen Needham, who normally didn't make TV movies, and it's got fabulous stunt work in it. I mean, it's so larger than life um, for a TV movie. But also, it's a metaphor for second wave feminism and for rape and Mm. how we put the onus of um, the attack on the woman so often. And... Um, and it's this really well done sort of statement about where we were in the second wave feminist movement in the late seventies. And it's, it's probably one of the best examples of it. And so I saw this movie years ago, um, when I first started my blog and I wrote a review of it and I sort of touched on the idea of that because I remember writing that Jan Clausen reminded me a little bit of Olivia Hussey's character in Black Christmas. I don't know if I feel that way on this viewing, Mm. But um, but that movie is obviously 
playing off second wave feminism as well with the abortion storyline and everything. So it got really nuanced in Are You in the House Alone, the, that book that I edited. Um, Jennifer Wallace wrote a review of it. And it's like one of the best reviews I've ever read of any movie ever. And if you have the book, please read it. It's fantastic. But it made me really understand what the movie was doing. And and so it's become a real prime example of something I like to showcase when I talk about second wave feminism. And it's all done with car chases. Like somehow they've made this pretty like action packed, very breezy, boom, boom, boom kind of movie that never lets up really on the action or the pace. But yet it's also like really saying something kind of serious about how we make women the victims of crime when they're, you know what I mean? Not the victims. We make them responsible when they're the victims of crime. They confront that because, you know, Peter Graves is telling the news what women need to do. And yes, women need to protect themselves. There's a guy on the 101 freeway killing people or whatever, but he's making it sound like it's all women's fault. Like, you know, like if you have any kind of aggressive driving behavior, forget it. You, you, you're doomed. And that's like saying if you dress provocatively at a bar, then you're asking for it. You know what I mean? It's the same thing. And and it's and she calls him on it, Janet Clausen's character. Lieutenant, he seems to be able to kill and escape at will. Even when the police are there. All right, one at a time, one at a time, please. We are going to catch the fiddler, I promise you that. Has there been any progress, Lieutenant? Any real progress? Are you any closer to catching this man than before? Well, we're presently checking out a couple of reports in the Sunland Tahunga area. Of a van answering the description of the one last used by the fiddler. What have you got, Lieutenant, really? You know, I'd like to say that the public can play an important role in cases like this, especially in a, in a preventive sense. What do you mean by that, Lieutenant? Well, women especially can help by not making themselves candidates for the fiddler. They might be interested to know that between them, the victims have accumulated ten moving violations in the last three years. Lieutenant. And one of them, Becky Lyons, has had her license suspended on at least one occasion. Lieutenant, are you saying that it was somehow these women's fault that they were attacked by the fiddler? What I'm saying is we have a situation where women must be aware of their actions. It sounds to me as if you've failed to catch the fiddler. So you've decided to shift the blame to the victims. Oh, I don't think that's it at all, Miss Claude. Well, sure it is. Isn't that what you're doing? What are you saying to me? That the victims were, were 100% blameless in all cases? Is that what you're saying? How can you pursue this case effectively if you feel this way? Well, I can pursue you're it effectively. You're talking about 10 you... violations in three years? There have been 12 victims. That's not even one violation apiece. That's nothing. No, it's not nothing. It's something. Because nine of those women are dead. Excuse me. And I love it. And so it's such a weird film because it's doing a couple of different things, but it's, it can be watched on so many different levels. And yes. it's kind of like kind of the best of its kind in a way because of that. And it's just fabulous. And even if you take all that stuff out, even if you're sitting here and you're saying, oh, my God, Amanda, that's all you freaking talk about all the time is second wave feminism. Would you stop? <laughs> you can still watch Death Car on the Freeway just as a action kind of maybe slasher kind of film and just enjoy it as like this weird little horror film that came out on television in 1979 too. So it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's a perfect film because it's probably not, but I think it's a perfect example of the TV genre film trying to um, use popular tropes in cinema and while still doing things that attract what would be the large female demographic that they were looking for? Does that make sense? Yes, and I don't think I have anything okay. as good good to say about it as as you did. But I I, I, can, come <laughs> up, I can try to come up with something. Um, I'm sure you can. Uh, first off, I was going to say the the teleplay is by William Wood. I'll just leave that there. 
I, I, th- I think I, I th- <laughs> you know what? It's perfect for car porn. Yes. Um, and it, it is in some respects, the first time I watched it, it felt like I'm, I'm not going to say porn. I'll say more like a slasher film or something like that. If you're sitting there watching going, I'm just here for the killings and all the stuff in between the killings is boring you. That's the way it was when I first started watching it when I was a teen. Um, but that's that's the kind of the way it was the first time I watched the movie because the stunt sequences and the car sequences are so good that a lot of the stuff with Shelley Hack arguing with George Hamilton and talking to Frank Gorshin and Barbara Rush seemed a bit overdone to me it's like okay i get it i get it you know because the whole thing is like oh you're 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 a woman and you're you're too nice and you got to be you got to be if you want to succeed in the news business you got to be rougher and ruder and this that and the other the second time i watched it however it didn't bother me as much and i i think i think i mean i think you're absolutely right i mean the movie so many stunt shots in the movie consist of helicopter shots of a busy freeway with a woman in a car as a guy drives up and hits her in the bumper over and over again. I don't know. Is that I, I don't I don't mean to be rude with my symbolism, but well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because of what I forgot to mention was that also I don't think that the freeway fiddler's music. I don't think it's the music that's important. I think it's the point that we're watching him insert the tape oh. into the player because that's a phallic symbol, right? Because so right before he he kills them or he hits the back of their car, as you pointed out, yeah. he. there's a penetration scene right and so like and i was like whoa what's going on here you know but it's like it's like it's 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 simulating rape in a way right especially if it's an eight track because eight tracks are are thicker and bigger than cassettes (laughs) wow true yeah i good old boy movies i think Smokey and the bandit i think hooper which i hope he directed and i'm not being an idiot about i think so i think think cannibal run fun crowd-pleasing movies this is so different even though he shows up in it yes he does he's great and and he teaches shelly hack to evade the, the 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 killer which is awesome when i saw hal needham's name on it I think the first time I went into it, I was like, I want to see some good car chases, and you get them. My favorite stunt shot in the movie is, I forget which chase it's in, because there are a lot of them, but there's one that ends with, you, you get sort of a high angle shot going up a hill, where you see the van suddenly go over the top of the hill like it's going to crash. But then the camera immediately pans to the right, and the and the van hits the hill, drives down like out yes. of control, drives down out of control onto a into a field, and merges with its left <laughs> turn signal on onto the freeway. I'm kidding about the turn signal, but it it goes into the freeway again, and it's such it's such a shot. It's like, oh my, because you get that thing where when a car's going down the hill, you can see that moment where it loses control briefly. And it does just for a moment, but then it's on the ground and then it merges onto an active freeway. That's an incredible stunt shot. Yeah, it was. I, I, and, and I like Shelley Hack in the movie. I, I'll be honest, George Hamilton gets on my nerves. He's meant to get on your nerves. But when he really got on my nerves was when there's a scene where she has kind of called out the fiddler 
That's what they call him. I know, I, I forget if it's the Flash or the Green Lantern has a villain called the Fiddler who drives a Fiddler car in the shape of a fiddle. This is a different Fiddler. <laughs> and I know I'm suddenly making it sound even more like car porn saying Fiddler over and over again. But um, she calls out the Fiddler on TV. George Hamilton, his character is Ray Jeffries, shows up at her house and immediately scares her does like not not like a full-on slasher jump scare but kind of scares her and then says something as he's leaving and she won't kind of welcome uh him into her home he says something like uh you know you don't want to leave these shades up you don't want to leave the door open because if he's looking at you he's going to see you long dominant in the field ktns's news at six anchored by veteran ray jeffries was nudged out of first place in the ratings for the first time this week by kxla's evening news beat producer ralph candler attributes the show's newfound success to quote a number of factors but the mail indicates that the fiddler follow-up with jeanette clausen has consistently attracted a large audience clausen coincidentally split from hubby's bed and board four months ago for solo career how sweet it is right Jan? I'm sorry about the last bit. It was totally unnecessary. Thank you for the flowers. That was very sweet. Well, you are the girl of the hour now, aren't you? For now? You know. Well, it's all very nice. But I think it's kind of risky, don't you? You're making a crusade out of this whole thing. Have you noticed how many crimes there are committed against women these days? It's like we're trying to do more for ourselves, and there are just some men who are determined to punish us for it. Jen, this guy's crazy. I know that. Don't you suppose he knows you by now? Don't you suppose he's watching? I've thought of that. Well, you're just his kind of girl. I mean, you're made to order. I think he's probably lapping up the attention. Jen, there's no telling what a maniac like this can do. And you're on the tube every night telling the whole world he's some sort of infantile creep who's not even sure he's a man. You're just asking for it, Jan. It's part of the job. And it's like, oh, come on. Really? I love George Hamilton. Come on. But he's, he's, he's in this movie, he drives me up the wall. You know, it's interesting because um, I kind of think, so this movie made me think of, and I actually put it in my notes here at the bottom for trivia, but I'll just say it here. So George Hamilton was in another movie that's actually very kind of dealing with feminism too, and that's The Strange Possession of Mrs. Oliver. Do you remember when we oh, covered sure. that with yeah, Karen Black? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's also like this husband who's very stuck in this sort of conservative model of what a family looks like. And so in The Strange Possession of Mrs. Oliver, though, he's very strict about about what he wants, and, and he's charmless. There's not a lot going on, and I'm not real sure why she's married to him. But in this movie, I kind of like him. I think he's well-meaning, but he's not evolved. So, like, when I say that, what I mean is, so, before the movie starts, we find out that uh, Janet Clausen's character had been working with her husband. He actually got her job as a news writer, and they had worked sort of hand-in-hand together, and she found she really enjoyed working, and she really enjoyed the news. And so, when they separated, she went to um, the rival station, and she worked her way up to becoming a news reporter, and eventually an anchor person and she was good at it and so like it bothered him because he liked when she was working with him and basically working for him 
but did not like it when she was able to do it by herself. And that was a real stickler for him. And so the thing is, is that she could come to him when things were bad. And I think she felt close to him and she loved him, but he was holding her back and that was a problem. And so, and I don't think that their marriage would ever work out. It was meant to be the way it ended, but like, but like, I think that he was not necessarily a bad person. I just think he was misguided. And that's my impression of yeah. him. Uh, he's overbearing for sure. And yes. he, he's pushy and he's aggressive. But, but I think at the core of it, it's, it's not that he doesn't believe that his wife can do these things, but the fact that she's doing them makes him feel insecure, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where their problem is. And that's, that's definitely like a real subtle kind of nod to what was happening when women wanted to have careers, right? So it's not that men thought that, you know, wanted their wives to not feel fulfilled or not be happy, but I think it was hard to see that they could do all these things because men for long have been taught that they were supposed to take care of everything and, and women were finding that they didn't need that. And I think it's kind of scary sometimes for people to consider that idea. You know, then they become irrelevant maybe or something. So yeah. it's it was a pretty interesting storyline, I thought. It, and it's the same year he was in Love at First Bite. So it's like Children of the Night, shut up. I haven't seen that movie in ages, but I remember him very clearly. <laughs> yeah, he was having quite the time at this uh, in this era of his career. But the film yeah. that definitely stuck out with me was *The Strange Possession of Mrs. Oliver*, which is yeah. interesting because the guy who ran the biker club was Robert Lyons, who is also in *The Strange Possession of Mrs. Oliver*. He's that guy that's in her dreams. Do you remember that yes. when there's the casket and he turns out he had some connection to the other Mrs. Oliver? Yes. Uh, yeah, they're both in this interesting sort of these sort of comments on feminism films. I'm trying not to talk about feminism all the time, but it's really hard because Death Card <laughs> is freeway. Re- it's, it's, it really is. It really is. I mean, I mean, I think it is. I think you're right. I mentioned that um, the mom from Silent Night, Deadly Night, who's this, also the star of the wonderful Claudia Fragasso film Night Killer, she is attacked. Tara Buckman. Tara Buckman. Who's the, her husband or her, her guy? Is that Christopher Allport? I, that's what I said. I said, is that Christopher Allport from Savage Weekend? Yes. And I think it is, yeah. Okay, Savage Savage Weekend, and he's also, he plays in the first season of The X-Files, he plays like Scully's mentor in an episode oh. who gets possessed. He is her um, sort of mentor slash lover who gets possessed by some gangster or something. Oh, wow. Like I don't remember that one. Yeah, but but when he shows up, it's like, I sat there, so I had, I had Shelly Hack. I had... The mom from Silent Night, Deadly Night, the the lead from Night Killer, and I had the gay friend from Savage Weekend, and I was just like blissing out. It was just like, oh my <laughs> gosh, I know, I know she's dying. I know the mom is dying. That's her, you know, lot in life. No, she made. No, I don't want to spoil Night Killer, but but you know that's you know, but it was just like, wow, that's a cast. <laughs> that's yeah. super fun. Wow. It's also really interesting. Um, well, we'll talk about the horror cred. Uh, just remind me to mention Nancy Stevens if you if if I forget I at the end. I will do my best. I will do my best. Nancy. Okay. Yeah, I know it's hard to because there's so many people in this movie. I need a pencil. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up that scene as well because not just for the cast because seeing Christopher Allport always makes my heart just jump because he's such a wonderful actor. Yeah. But like what I thought was so compelling about that scene in particular is I guess she's really like the first victim that we see that dies, and she's. 
a nurse, right? Because the first two victims are are Dinah Shore, who's a tennis player. And I'm going to comment on her, not so much her, but her part of the story here in a second. But And then an actress. And I'm not saying that those jobs aren't important, but then we've got this pretty selfless kind of job that a woman takes on. That's actually a very traditional job that women, even before women were trying to go out and work, there were always nurses, right? So there was always women working as teachers and nurses. That's very conventional. And she's getting married, right? She's engaged to this man played by Christopher Allport, who's in the military. So they've got this very honorable couple and she's just been killed because the freeway fiddler thought she was pretty and not, and maybe cut him off on the freeway. Right. And it, that's where you see. And I love that, that they did that with the most, the character, the, without knowing that much about them, you can have a lot of compassion for it just by the fact that she was a nurse. But to go back to the Dinah Shore thing, when you were doing the um, breakdown, the brief breakdown, the thing that I like so much about, and I guess we could talk a little bit more about female intuition maybe, but like when they're watching Morgan Brittany talk about her uh, car attack on the news she remembered, uh, Shelly Hack's character remembers that something had happened to a woman six months prior who was Dinah Shore. Mm-hmm. And so she goes back and looks through the old tapes. And then she starts to piece things together herself that, that these two incidences are probably connected. And then so it made me think that maybe there's some female intuition involved. But the way the mystery unfolds is really good because um, yeah. it just kind of this thing happens. And then her being a news reporter, remembering a lot of the news stories that she sees, recalls something that happened prior. And so it's very – the freeway filler doesn't go off the – hook until i guess the news really starts talking about him and um and until then it's just it seems like these sporadic sort of attacks that nobody can piece together because there's so many accidents on the freeway that it's impossible to know if it's an accident or somebody actually maliciously attacks somebody but you you know admittedly the freeway fiddler is really reckless on the road and you would think that the witnesses in the other cars would recognize that the person who went off the road more than likely was chased off the road. That's a, that that is sort of one of the problems I have with the, um, especially the Morgan Brittany thing because you see her him like crashing her and push her like across three lanes of freeway. I drive the Ventura freeway. I've been on it many times. I believe you have too. Yeah. And and if if you see someone slam into a car and push them across the freeway, you're not later on going to think, "Mm, they were both recklessly driving. No, the the giant car was pushing the little car across (laughs) the freeway. Yeah, Yeah, you know, that. um, also when you were talking about that great stunt where he goes down the hill and then merges into traffic, somebody would remember that. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, that that shit doesn't, that's not how you merge. I don't care how crazy LA freeways get. You don't, because like I said, the way it's shot for two seconds, you think it's shot like he is flying off a hill and going to crash and burn. But then when it pans over, he's large and in charge. So he knows these freeways. (laughs) I mean, he's literally leaping off of one freeway onto another and that doesn't happen. Sorry, folks. Uh, You know, if you've never been on a freeway, God bless it. You've had a better life than I have. (laughs) But, but... I would live in LA again if I thought that the freeway fiddler was jumping from one freeway (laughs) to another because it would be worth it just to see that. You know? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a great scene. It's a great <laughs> yeah, the, scene. The stonework is amazing, and it, there's this really great, when they introduce Hal Needham's character, he plays Mr. Blanchard, yes. who is the guy who teaches defensive driving. I love he's Mr. Blanchard, but he's this, like, super cool, like, stunt driver guy who runs the school, and he's, like, and the so they're watching this, like, kind of crazy car chase thing that ends in, like, I think the cars hit each other or something, or they swerve, and all this crazy stuff happens, and then he just says, you can park those anywhere, and then they start laughing. He's parking anywhere. <laughs> What do you think? I think he got away. Yeah, I think he got away. But you know what? That's a lot more difficult than it really looks. But with the proper training, almost anybody can do it. That's why the other night I was watching on television and we were talking to the ladies about how to get away from the fiddler. And I said, I might as well call her and tell her to come down and see what my school's all about. Well, I'm glad you did because I just never saw anything like it before in my life. How long is your course? Oh, it depends. Uh, I think with somebody like you, I'd probably put you through the anti-terrorist course. Uh, they had a kidnapping. We'd modify it maybe a little bit to suit your specifics. And, uh, oh, four or five days, four or five hours a day, something like that. Oh, that's not long at all. No. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Now I have to ask my producer. But I think the thing to do is for me to take the course myself. I think you're right. Yeah, can we have a crew come along and film it? Sure, why not? Terrific. Right. You're on. Okay, lady, come on. And he's such a naturalistic actor. Like, I don't know that he was an actor at all. I know he was a stuntman. But he's so good. And and actually, some of my favorite moments of the film uh, with Shelley Hack are with Mr. Blanchard. Because he brings something out in her that um, I really like. Like, there's a glint in her eye or something. She seems really happy to be working with him in the scenes yes. that they have together. There's a lot of energy between the two of them. Yes, that that crazy car chase they have where you think it's the, the fiddler, but it's him. When, when yeah. she gets out of the car, it's, it's, you know, you're in the midst of terrible things happening. But at that time, you're like, oh, my gosh, we're having so much fun. And it, which is really cool, yeah. which is slightly <laughs> strange, but really cool, too. Yeah, yeah, there's just a lot of energy in the film. And... Um, um, I'm trying to think what else we want to talk about because mm. there's a lot going on, but I think we covered the bases. Oh, oh, so so also like there's another woman. I think he kills her. She's a mother, and she gets called to come pick up her kid at school. Oh, and, yes, she and gets... it's Nancy Stevens from Halloween, the nurse. Yes, yep. Yeah, she so there's who would it just? Yeah, so you don't see all of the car chases as they're happening, but there's one where they just see a woman going into an ambulance and another woman dead in the car, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and like, he's just ramming his way through the streets yeah. of LA and demolishing these women. And all the responsibility falls on the women's shoulders as, as Peter Graves plays this really inept. Uh, yeah. There's yeah. There, yeah. That, that sequence where, where he's talking to, to um, uh, Shelly hack in, in the TV station where it's just like, well, uh, the van, no, a van, it may not have been the same van. Well, attack them. And attack is your word. And he gets like every three words, he stops her to, to correct her. Yes. For what is, and it's just like, I love Peter Graves more than I love certain members of my family, specifically <laughs> on my father's side. But, but I, I just like, this is like, this is in, in the end, I like him. But I, but but you you gotta slog through a, a bunch to. He's great, but but it's just like he's ugh, he's he's a little it, too much at times. It's the it's the nineteen seventy nine version of mansplaining. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. It's, yeah, it's yeah. you 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 
Oh, oh, geez, I just did that to you. Okay, I'm going to mute myself for a minute. <laughs> no, oh, you didn't. God. No, you just agree with me. But, I mean, that's kind of what it is. And and um, and to be – let's put it out there. I don't think all the men are treated like idiots in this film. I do think that George Hamilton and Peter Graves are two of the more inept characters. But her co-reporter, the guy who first breaks the, the story with Morgan Brittany, is really supportive of her. Yes. Frank Gorshin is really supportive of yes. her. Yes. And um and of course Mr. Blanchard's wonderful. What's interesting though is is that and we can talk about the ending I guess. Um because the ending is really interesting. I thought for sure that Frank Gorshin was going to be the freeway fiddler and I'm not sure why. <laughs> I, I thought because it, it rides with Riddler. Yeah, it rides yes, with Riddler. There you, go. Actually, there you go. Yeah. I was just like I'm pretty sure it's him. But did you have did you think it was somebody from the cast? No, no. I I I I pretty much thought uh, uh oh and i i don't mean to sound superior to anybody here i i just thought it was it was meant to be just like a random jackass just hurting people and it and was yes and and some great bikers yes i love right. the scene with the bikers so much i think it's such a good scene because they're really nice bikers apart from some jerks who beep at her that's also another thing to point out is that not all the men are evil in this or stupid or horrible and and but they they paint them originally when so so jenna gets a phone call from um somebody Barry is it yeah or, or yeah. It? it's Robert Lyons character and he's like yes. you know I, I might have some information on the freeway fiddler you should come see me I'm here and so she goes by herself and she has to walk by some scary people and then she goes into like this sort of abandoned building and there's these bikers there and they're and they're standing at the end of the room and they're like really like scary but then they really want to tell her we think yes. that the Freeway Fiddler is this guy that used to come over here and act a very peculiar way, and we were all suspicious of him because we're not like that, you know. Yes, I, I, I love the way the the guy she talks to, who has the facial sort of bit of disfigurement, oh, gives yeah. her gives her the evidence because it's it's I don't want to say it's sweet, but it's almost like oh you're the reporter, yeah this guy's name was Jack whatever. Wait a minute. And he goes in a room. He goes in a, a little room house space. He steps out a second later, hands her a magazine. The magazine has a label with Jack's address. And then he goes on his way. It's kind of sweet, almost. Like, hey, we, we you know, we look tough. You know, and Sid Haig playing a guy named Maury is, <laughs> is, is, looks tough too. But it's, it's Sid Haig and God rest in peace, sir. You know, I, I think if I ever met him, we would have had a great time together. He's but, awesome. But, but, but yeah, that, that biker scene, I really love that biker. That reminded me of um, the Titus Moody film, uh, the short film Outlaw Motorcycles, uh, uh, which, is, which is a fun film about sort of going into a motorcycle gang in the late 60s. But I, I, I love that scene. I thought that was a really sweet scene. And I did not see that coming at all. Yeah, I thought it was really good too. And then it, it leads to this really interesting cameo by Harriet Nelson, who oh, yes. is, is like the woman who runs the place that the Freeway Fiddler is staying, was staying at. And she's blind. And I was, I made a note, I'm going to go through all these actors already, but like she was also in Smash Up on Interstate 5. So she's she's in her share of car. I didn't put that on my list of car movies. Um, that's definitely car porn. <laughs> yeah, that is car 
porn. Definitely. <laughs> but she has my favorite storyline on, on uh, Death Car on the, I'm not I'm sorry, on Smash Up Interstate 5, which we talked about in our last episode, because it intertwines all these different stories and how they all end up on the freeway together. And her story is, is my favorite. But um, so, like, this weird Harriet Nelson cameo, for like two minutes she's in it. Yes. And then she kind of directs them to the um, house or the room that he had been staying in. And, it, and so, like, his room is like a, a shrine to cars because yes. it's got cars just like different cars he's cut out of all these different magazines taped all over the the walls and like little baby dolls and things like that on the floor like really bizarre stuff and and so instead of like naked women right mm-hmm. like on the walls it's cars oh and we forgot to talk about the psychologist who so so janet brings sure. on Brings on this woman who's going to be like the mind. What do they call that? The guy Dr. who Doctor Glass. Yeah. No, but uh, what do oh, they call those people? Oh, which mind hunter. So like. Oh yeah, yeah. So she's like the mind hunter who comes on, and she's like basically he has a really tiny penis and feelings of insecurity. Like she doesn't <laughs> say that exactly, but that's basically what she says. You know what I mean? And like in like five or six more sentences, and without using the word penis. But she's basically like saying he really he really questions his masculinity. Everybody and she and I'm and so I'm like I wonder who the next victim's going to be, and I'm surprised that he didn't hunt her down. To be honest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I really like this. I, I really like this movie. That I think um, if if you like I said if you, just for me I thought some of the um, interpersonal stuff was a bit overbearing because the car porn stuff is so good. But the second time through it sort of washed over me a bit. George Hamilton is, is a bit of an ass, but, um, uh, but he was Zorro the gay blade, wasn't he? Yes. Oh, that was, that was one of my favorite films on HBO when I was a kid. I almost broke my neck leaping from a staircase in the basement with a sword and hitting my head on the support beam at the top of the bottom of the uh, basement steps and, and falling to the ground when I was a little kid, pretending to be Zorro the Gay Blade. Well, sure. Uh, Who didn't? Sure, Who that didn't? happened. Who didn't? Who didn't, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so. just real, real quickly before we conclude, um, just the ending itself, I, I yes. sort of referenced it. It's, it is a really interesting ending because it ends with, um, we're going to be spoilery here, but it basically ends with a car chase where Janet has to use her defensive driving skills. I keep saying Janet, it's Jan. I'm not sure if it's, I think it's Jeanette Clausen. Jeanette, Jeanette Jan. Clausen, yes. Yeah, I mentioned it. So, like, she's doing her defensive driving and, and he ends up going off the freeway, and I think his car sort of explodes before it makes an impact. As it immediately, so immediately, yeah. <laughs> and and then it ends, and then their credits roll, and I was like, "Wow, we're never going to know anything like, about the freeway fiddler ever." That's that's like like a 1930s horror film or something, where the moment you know Frankenstein's monster burns, it ends, and you get nothing. You get nothing. Yeah. Yeah, like there's so we're never really going to find out, which is kind of the right way to end it. Yeah, I think I kind of think so. Yeah. I thought there was going to be a little more or maybe there would be an epilogue where she's back at the station because she gets fired for sticking her neck out, you know, calling these fucking men uh, authority (laughs) figures on their shit. Sorry, I'm trying not to curse as much, but like that's what she does. And no, she gets yeah. fired for it because at one point Peter Graves' character is like, I won't let her interview me anymore. She's not allowed to come to these conferences I'm having with the news because 
every time he says something stupid, she's like, what are you saying? You're saying yes. women, it's women's fault that they're being attacked on the freeway. And like, and like he, he knows <laughs> that she's making him look like an idiot because that's what he is. And he's not up in his game. And like, and remember he cited, remember the, there's a woman who, who is on the news who had been um, chased down by the freeway fiddler and the police actually were there. Yes. And, and they cited her for speeding and let and the fiddler go. Go. And and yes. she so and she calls them on it because she's like yes. you know, oh, it's her fault. And mm. so like, oh, I can't even like I'm getting awesome. so passionate about this because because like there's a movie that came out in the early 70s right before um the Elizabeth Montgomery movie uh which I believe is called Case of Rape, which is the groundbreaking movie about how women are treated after they've been sexually assaulted by the system. And so it's like getting raped over and over again, basically. And a movie came out a couple months before it called Cry Rape or She Cried Rape. And what they basically mean is She Cried Wolf. And oh. it's about a woman who gets raped, um, played by Andrea Markovici, who we talked about in the Hario pilot. And her and several other women identify this man as who was in um, – Senior trip. All these movies we've covered. I can't remember the actor's name now. And um, <laughs> maybe and, I can look it up. Let me see. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. They all are like this man raped me, but it turned out it was a guy who just looked a lot like him. And so I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, so basically these seven women have misidentified their rapist. So what you're saying is, is that women don't or can't be relied upon to give evidence about their own assault. You know what I mean? And it yeah. was so enraging. I mean, I, it's a good movie in a way because it's the first of its kind. And it did try to some degree to sort of broach the topic of rape in a sensitive manner. But then it got lost in this crazy story about this guy having a doppelganger. And and I got so upset by the end of it. I was like, what are they doing? Uh, and and so like so, so I'm talking about Death Card on the Freeway because it's actually kind of doing everything right in a way. But yes. it's also packaging it. In a way that you could either look at it like, oh, my God, this movie is really saying something serious about the way women are assaulted all the time. Or you could say, dude, that car chase was rad. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it's, it's, it's Hell Needham. I would – I imagine Hell Needham has passed. Has anyone – did anyone actually interview him and say, wait a minute, in between Smokey and the Bandit 2 and Cannibal Run, what the hell was this film you made here? Yeah, I, know, I haven't seen anything. I couldn't find anything about it, but it's kind of an important film, and I, I feel like an important film in his own filmography. Yeah, yeah I, I would I would say so. Yeah, definitely. Oh, wow. This, this is just something relating to um, – uh, sort of the, lo the locations so so there are moments when like uh, Morgan Brittany is um, and you may know her as the uh, best maybe as the uh, woman who shot Bobby at the end of season eight and um, died Alex. in a car accident didn't she it, it gets crazy and yes, so so yeah, so so yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, is, that's I know that's a spoiler, but she she is Pam and and Cliff's half sister in Dallas. Who, oh, I'm I'm giving too much away for people who haven't watched Dallas. But um, so so um, but but Morgan Brittany is going to Van Nuys, and there are shots of like Van Nuys, one half mile. She's in the middle of the desert. I'm in Van Nuys. <laughs> I, I you know I can get to one half mile from Van Nuys running in about ten minutes, and I can assure you I will be near a gas station or a CVS rather than the desert so so some of the um just location that that doesn't that doesn't ruin the film in any way shape or form that's just a thing for anyone who knows the area but there is at least i think the 
final chase and there is one other chase they use a huge stretch of freeway that's like completely abandoned that there's no one on it uh and the fiddler's chasing them around it and in 1978 there was a film called stunt rock that Mm. does several big stunt scenes on big freeway sequences there's a sequence where um, Monique Van de Ven shoots a flare at a van. It catches on fire. Grant Page leaps out the front window uh, of it on fire. There's another sequence where Grant Page goes from one car to another on this huge stretch of freeway. And on the commentary, Brian Treacher Smith on the DVD says there was this stretch of freeway, circa 78, that was either being repaired or being finished or was just sitting there that you could rent for a day really cheap. I don't know for certain because I f- couldn't fully recognize it looking at them, but I feel like there are at least there's at least one or two sequences in Death Car on the freeway that use that same space that Stunt Rock did. Oh, because maybe, it's, yeah. It's the same loop above it and down onto it, and it's the same. You can see freeway busy nearby, but you had this empty space around it. So so that's cool, I think, that they had this space. So, boom. Yeah, I mean, they make the ma- the most of the L.A. freeway locations. And it must Definitely. be difficult because there's so much happening on the freeway. And that's got to be hard to film because the freeways in L.A., there's rush hour, but there's always kind of yeah. stuff happening on the freeways there. Yeah, I, I feel like they were probably just outside of L.A. for most of it. Yeah, in probably. spaces where they could, because it's all, a lot of it are, uh, a lot of it is helicopter shots where you're, uh, and then and then when you get, it's it's really good. It's If you love car porn, uh, this is great. If you love something with a little extra, this is also great. So, yeah, it's got all, it covers all your bases. Um, yes. And so let me just give you a little background on it. I don't know much. It originally aired on September 25th, 1979 on CBS. It ran against the last convertible, which was mentioned in that essay. So the synopsis of the last convertible was a World War II coming-of-age drama about five men who meet in the fall of 1940 at Harvard. The war affects all of them, each in different ways. A green 1939 Packard convertible is at the center of the story, as is Chris Ferris, a beautiful Radcliffe girl. It was um, starred Perry King and Deborah Raffin. So that's something I can't believe I've never seen because I'm huge fans of both of those actors. Um, and then on ABC, of course, it ran against the huge juggernaut known as Three's Company, um, Taxi, and an episode of Lazarus Syndrome, which I've seen the pilot to the Lazarus Syndrome. I had no idea it became a series, but Lou Gossett Jr. was in the pilot movie, and it is streaming on Amazon if anybody wants to see it. I remember it was about doctors. I don't remember much more about it, but um, Lou Gossett's great in it, I'm sure. It got a rating of 16.6 slash 34. Didn't do great. It came in at number 115 out of 287 movies to air in the 1979-1980 season. Interestingly enough, um, this was the week of cars. So we had the last convertible. We had Death Car on the Freeway. And the theatrical film The Betsy also aired on CBS that week. Um, also did poorly in the ratings. In December of 1978, a newspaper article started to report the film going into production. Although there was, um, at that point, no cast. So a lot of things we talk about on this show show is um, the short production times that TV movies had. This one seemed to have had a longer one. I'm guessing because not only the stunts, but also having Hal Needham attached to it was probably a pretty big deal. And they, so they, I think they gave him time to make this film. So um, 
if it aired in September and they started working on it in December the year before, that's nine months. That's a lot longer than most TV movies get. Um, in early February, Peter Graves was announced as a member of the cast. Um, William Wood, who wrote this, has made some amazing telefilms. He did Haunts of the Very Rich, Outrage with uh, Robert Culp, which is fantastic. He did Savages with Andy Griffith. He also did a movie called City Killer which is a really cool movie that where he flattens cities in that movie. Like they use all this stock footage of like buildings just crumbling in front of you. And it starts Heather Locklear as a woman who has caught the attention of an old boyfriend who's psychotic. And he decides he's going to get her attention by blowing things up. So he destroys the entire city and they call him the love bomber. And it's amazing. It's amazing. So William Wood wrote that. And he also wrote something called Children of the Night. Um, just a little background on Hal Needham. Needham was a stuntman before he was a director. His first stunt was in the film um, The Spirit of St. Louis from 1957. He actually doubled for Burt Reynolds, um, I think, in that one. Or he was a double for Burt Reynolds, and the two were very close friends. Oh, they met on a production of Riverboat. He sometimes doubled for actors like Clint Walker and Richard Boone. So that'll give you an idea of the size of Hal Needham, because if you're doubling for Clint Walker... You are huge because he has to be the biggest man I've ever seen. Um, yes. And I think he was. Um, Needham's first directing job was Smoking the Bandit, which surprised me because that was a fucking huge film. Yes. It, yeah. Oh Right out of the park. It was the second highest grossing film of that year and um, was made just a couple of years before Death Car. I think it made over $100 million at the box office, which is like Crazy, yep. a bazillion dollars now. Of directing, how Needham said, it's a snap. Needham was the first human used to study the effectiveness of airbags. So you know those ads where you see the dummies and then the airbag pops open on them? Do you know what I'm talking about from the 80s? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Hal Needham was the first person to be that dummy. <laughs> yeah. Very smart dummy. Yeah. yeah. So um, this is Shelley Hack's TV movie debut. I had read that it was her TV debut, but I looked on IMDb and it looks like she had had a couple other parts on TV. Um, so she did. She actually did Charlie's Angels after she did this. I think there's a lot of confusion as to when this happened in her career. So she was a model. Uh, she um, was a very famous model. She was the Charlie Girl, which is funny because she would go on to make Charlie's Angels, right? And um, she uh, was all over. TV and newsprint and magazines at the time. And I think Revlon maybe did Charlie's Girl. And they had actually invested a lot of money in her, but she really wanted to be an actress. And she actually upset them quite a bit because she started, she kind of walked away from modeling sort of at the peak of her career. And um, she had said that um, she began modeling at 14, but even at that point, she wanted to be an actor. And she took a lot of acting classes. She appeared in a theatrical that I can't remember the name of. It didn't do very well when it came out, but she got some notice for it. She actually was, she says, she was cast to star in Time After Time. She was dating the director at the time, Nicholas Meyer, but she does have a small wow. part. Yeah, she says she turned it down. He says that she wasn't offered the lead, but they've broken up, so who knows whose story is whose. But she does play a docent in it, in a scene in it, so she does appear in it. But um, she said she turned it down because they were dating and she wanted to get parts based off talent and not so much off her dating a director. Shelly Hack got a lot of flack for being on Charlie's Angels. I just want to briefly talk about something that happened to her that really upset me. So she came in to replace Kate Jackson, which, to be fair, is an irreplaceable character on Charlie's Angels. Um, Sabrina was like the 
angel to me. And so when she left, you know, they were scrambling, of course. And, um, and all, of course, a lot of people were up for the job, including, I believe, Claudia Jennings, who was a Playboy Playmate who wanted to make a bunch of B-movies. And to be fair, Shelley Hack and uh, Claudia Jennings do have some physical similarities. And in the mm-hmm. pilot, I think, where they introduced Shelley Hack or in the first big episode with Shelley Hack, there is a character who looks like Claudia Jennings named Claudia in the episode. And I think, I think Claudia Jennings got really close to getting cast, but it didn't work out because she was on, in Playboy and they didn't want to Playboy Playmate in Charlie's Angels. So the part goes to Shelley Hack. It wasn't a great year for Charlie's Angels. I don't think that her performances were very strong. There's a scene where she's talking to Jacqueline Smith and she says, my Kelly, you're looking a bit peaky today. And that's kind of her delivery throughout the entire season. Um, yeah, it wasn't great, but she is a very good actress. Um, pretty much everything she did post Charlie's Angels has been pretty strong. Um, her TV movie career is really good, but if you've seen her in something, you've probably seen her in The Stepfather, which she's great in, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah, she's wonderful in that. But I just want to briefly talk about a couple of her TV movies. I made just a short list here. So she was in Single Bar, Single Women, which is kind of an ensemble piece that's really good. It's uh, streaming on Amazon if you haven't seen it. She plays Paul Michael Glazer's ex, and they sort of reunite at this bar while all these other stories are happening. She looks amazing. She's great in it. Um, she starred in Track Down, Finding the Good Bar Killer, which is the sequel to the uh, Looking for Mr. Good Bar, sort of. Um, they try to disassociate themselves from the film, but it's basically like the real life story of how they caught the good bar killer. So it's it's basically a police procedural starting with the death of, I guess, Diane Keaton's character in the film. And she plays a school teacher who has an affair with um, the cop played by George Siegel um, in his TV movie debut. It's not my favorite film, but I think she's really good in it. And also... If you get a chance to watch the opening credits, it is the best opening credits I've ever seen in a TV movie ever. By far the best. But the rest of the movie, it's it's only okay. In 1985, she starred in a movie called Kicks, which is by the people who did This House Possessed and Fantasies. It's She plays an adrenaline junkie in that who hooks up with a billionaire adrenaline junkie, and they start to do these um, <laughs> kind of stunts together. But it leads to the death of somebody. And then when she wants to go to the authorities, the... Um, Boyfriend tells her he's going to kill her, basically, and then it becomes a chase across the city. It's really good. Um, nice. And then in the in the 80s or early 90s, she was in a really good sort of comedy based on a true story called Frequent Flyer. This would be one of her last TV appearances where she plays a woman married to a guy who has like three other wives. Um, Jack Wagner plays the husband and uh, Nicole Eggert is one of the wives. And it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and she's great in it as well. She's like the wife who figures everything out. Um, so I think the Shelley Hack is really good in this movie. I don't think it's her best performance. I think you'll see that comes after Charlie's Angels. But she's done a slew of really good films. And I kind of feel like people are really mean about her talent. And I, don't, I didn't phrase that right. They're really mean about her talent, guys. And I don't like it. <laughs> Come on. Shut up. <laughs> can I? Can I uh, whenever I think of Shelley Hack, I always think of, forgive me, The Last Slumber Party. Because there's a moment in that when Chris is on one of the phones in, at the end of the movie, near the end of the movie, she's on, there are two phones in the bathroom up in one of, I, I forget, the, the gal's uh, bedroom, and she answers the phone and goes, hello, who is this? Who do you think this is? Shelly Hack? <laughs> and it, it's like, and, and, and so that movie began in the late 80s, but was finished later in the 80s. So I always think, whenever I hear that, I think, Shelly Hack? Is that, hmm, and that's Chris, who I trust is the final girl. 
So I don't know. Yeah, well, I guess she was already part of the cultural lexicon by yes. the time we got to that point, which is great. <laughs> she deserves to be there, and um, yes. she's lovely, and I'm I'm very pleased that she's still with us and acting and doing her thing. She does autograph shows now. You should Google her. Um, oh, she looks amazing. Yeah. But um, so anyway, I just think she's better than people give her credit for. Is what I'm trying to say. So yeah, I, I like I like her in the movie. I, I think she's good in the movie, especially the biker scene. I think she's yeah. really good in that. Yeah. There's the way she clutches her purse. I love that scene because she's terrified, but she's also like, I've got to get some answers. And so like yeah. she's she's there to like ask questions and get information, but she's you can tell that she's petrified. And and just the way she holds her purse when she walks by, and then those really mean guys try to scare her, and then they laugh at her. They they, they, yeah, they're just some jerks. The 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 they're, they're, the main guys, I think, actually are sort of fans of hers. Yeah, I think so. So so, yeah. so it's sort of like like just the way Maury goes up to her and he's like, "Hey, I knew this guy. He's a roach." Is I think that's a term he uses. We yeah. call them a roach, and it's like that's Sid. Hey, come on, Sid, knock <laughs> it off, Spider Baby, get out of here. Come on. So, as I said, George Hamilton appeared in uh, the other feminist thriller, The Strange Position of Mrs. Oliver, which also featured Robert Lyons, who we just talked about, who's the leader of the gang in the movie. Um, I guess I already talked about it. Oh, Ava Goda was in Cannonball Run, too. So, Ava Goda has a weird cameo in this, where he's the patient in the hospital that Tara Buckman is taking care of. And he was in Hal Needham's Cannonball Run, too. Tara Buckman, of course, was in Cannonball Run. She plays, I think, Adrian Barbeau's um, partner in crime. Yep, yep. Yeah. Dinah Shore, of course, dated Burt Reynolds, um, and, and I don't know if they were dating at this point, but I, I'm guessing that she knew Hal Needham through Burt Reynolds. And then, as I mentioned, Shelley Hack would go on to play an adrenaline junkie in Kicks. Connie Needham on Eight is Enough, who plays Elizabeth, is married to Hal's son, and I believe that Hal Needham's son worked on the show Eight is Enough, and that's how they met. Um, and oh, I, sure, yeah. I remember. I just finished watching the third uh, season. There are so many stunts in that. It's crazy. <laughs> the car when he goes off the freeway and merges oh into the other freeway. <laughs> Dick Van Patten on the wow. Get That's amazing. Here. So Nancy Stevens, of course, who I mentioned, who plays the mom. Uh, she was in several of the Halloween movies. She's married to Rick Rosenthal, of course, who directed Halloween 2 and The Abysmal Resurrection, which we won't talk about. Barbara Rush and Morgan Brittany were old TV movie pros. Of course, Barbara Rush was in one of your favorites, um, Moon of the Wolf with Bradford Dillman. Oh. She's in that. And, of course, I know Morgan Brittany the best from The Initiation of Sarah. Uh, They appeared together in another, uh, on one other thing. It was a short-lived series called Glitter from the mid-'80s. The episode is titled The Runaway. And, of course, Sid Haig is a cameo, which we just mentioned. Um, So Sid Haig was who, I guess, when I think of Sid Haig, I think of his B-movie career. But in this era of his life, he was doing a lot of television. So um, he was doing Jason of Star Command, where he was a reoccurring character, right? And then he was also on Heart to Heart, Switch, Charlie's Angels, and Buck Rogers. And I don't know if he was on a Charlie's Angels with Shelley Hack. I should have looked that up, but he is in a Charlie's Angels. Oh, yeah. He was on a Monster Squad. He plays Mr. No-Face. Oh, of course. Of course. Um, uh, um, uh, Gopher. From yeah, for Grandy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was super fun. Yeah. So um, Kevin Thomas of the LA Times really liked Death Car on the Freeway. He said it was tense and to the point. Um, he said Miss Hack plays with firm conviction. The Associated Press hated it. They said it made California fever look like Chekhov. And I think that's it. That's my oh, hey. Yay, we made it. Oh my god. Yes. Can can I can I just do one more thing that's just gonna take thirty seconds? Sure. Just because I looked at the top ten grossing films of nineteen seventy seven 
Number 10 is Annie Hall. Nine is Oh God. Eight, Spy Who Loved Me. Seven, The Deep. The Deep? Uh, six, A Bridge Too Far. Five, The Goodbye Girl. Four, Saturday Night Fever. Three, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Two, Smokey and the Bandit. One, Star Wars. Oh, my God. So, so Hal Needham, I will I will admit that Smokey and the Bandit is some way behind Star Wars, but if you remember Star Wars, yeah, yeah, that's a hell of a Annie Hall. Oh God, Smokey and the Bandit. Star Wars. What? The a great. Deep? That's a great year for TV. I mean, for film. That's, that's a hell of a. Hell, and the Spy Who Loved Me is kind of tucked in there. I love the Spy Who Loved Me. There you go. It was a, it was a great year, and then Death Car shows up just a couple years later. Yes. Just to make things oh, better. Man. Yeah, Hal Needham was a was a great and good man, and I miss him. Yeah. He's so he's so he's so good in the movie. Oh, he's, he's so good. He's, it's natural. He's he he got, yeah, like you said his, his charisma like hits you. Yeah, right instantly. Uh, he must have been so much fun to hang out with. I would love to go to mm-hmm. a party with him and Burt Reynolds. Oh my god, especially in a car. Yeah. Could you imagine? <laughs> oh, it would have been like Oh my god, cuz it's like when they talk about against stunt rock when they talk about being in a car with Grant Page and he would like go across five lanes of freeway at once. You know, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I I just feel safe and warm. That would be awesome. He destroyed the only thing he ever loved. He killed my little brother. That's why they call it vehicular homicide. Mindless terror, which no one is safe. Makes ten this month. What are we gonna do about it tonight? And before the death toll rises, he'll be on the road. I'm over the line, Susan. I'm way over the line. There is no stopping the gladiator tomorrow. This is where I do my Ken Wall impression really badly. But <laughs> Yay. yeah, here we go. Hey, you know, I got to go watch the gladiator and everything, you know, it's coming on. So Dan, Hey, 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 what's, what's, ha- <laughs> no, I don't, I, I did don't you, have did anything. Did I'm... you feel like Ken Wall was in the podcast with us? I did. You know, you know what? My, um, my, I, I finished watching Gladiator and I went to my wife and said, I just watched a film called Gladiator with Ken Wool. And she said, Ken Wall? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and she said, oh, oh, he has dreamy eyes. And I paused and I thought, yes, yes, he does. He does have dreamy eyes, but he's also built like a Mack truck. I kept. I spent the whole time thinking of dr- the Driller Killer when he was driving around <laughs> and, and stuff. And I was thinking, um, Ken Wall is the um, is the the hunky, dreamy version of Abel Ferrara um, uh, attacking homeless people and things in Driller Killer. I buy but, it. Um, yeah. So I'm not. I'm not. I can go overboard with this one. I'm not going to. Um, the the movie begins at a bar. There's a drunk guy. Uh, a guy, oh, I actually have, here's my note, Phil likes drinking. There's a guy named Phil, and he's drinking, and uh, <laughs> they cut him off, and the barmaid, it, it, that's not right, it, the, I'm going to call her the barmaid, uh, goes out, she's finished her shift, it's the middle of the night, she goes out, she accidentally bumps a car in the parking lot, not badly, it's just a dink, uh, that's what bumpers are made for, and she drives away, but suddenly you see that very much like the death car on the freeway, there is a crazy guy in tinted windows who comes after her and kills her much quicker than the death car did. Basically pushes her off a cliff. She's dead. 
And so one of the running things through the movie, because I may forget it when I get caught up in the in the Ken Wall story, Rick Benson is his name. Throughout the movie, we will cut back to this um, tinted glass car that um, has some tricks built into it that chases people down. At first, it looks like, uh, no, it actually looks like he's always crazy. So uh, we cut from this car driving this woman off this cliff to Rick Benson and his brother, right? It's his brother. Yeah, yeah. It's his younger brother. So Rick is Rick is a hunk. I don't know what age that qualifies him at. He's in his mid-20s, I guess, I would say. And he's a mechanic. He works for a, um, like at a car dealership for a real goofball douchebag guy. Um, yeah, but it's Rick D's. They're mine. All mine. Yeah. Ooh. I'm the king of the classic cars. And this, of course, is my kingdom. <laughs> you know, I'm number one in Los Angeles. And you know, when it comes to cars, Los Angeles is the world. So I guess that makes you king of the world? <laughs> You're a perceptive woman. I like that. I like that. Susan Neville, talk show host. I listen, hot spot, right? Look, I, I've heard your show. I dig politics, really. I'm a political kind of guy. Gee, I never would have guessed. Hey, I was there. Come on, the 60s, behind the barricades, free Huey, free the Chicago 7, free the Pac-10. <laughs> Pac-10. <sighs> I don't back away from how I described him, but it's Rick Dees. No, oh, Disco Duck. Oh, I'm gonna, he's he, great. He says, he says, hey, go fix the car. And Ken Wall's, hey, oh, you know, I'll go fix the car. I'll go fix the car. Even though I, I grew up in LA, I sound like I'm from New York, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so Rick Dees is there, spinning the top four, whatever it was Rick Dees did. I, I mainly remember from like Disco Duck. He was something. a DJ. And uh, one of their customers is uh, Nancy Allen, who plays a character named Susan Neville, who has a, um, a radio show, talk radio, one of those great 80s radio shows where the whole studio is dark and, you know, you just have <laughs> someone lean. I'm doing it now. I'm leaning close to the mic. You're on Dan Budnick's hot spots. Oh, Jennifer, what do you have to say about <laughs> you know that kind of thing? That that's what her radio show is like. Tonight's show will be devoted solely to the Gladiator. The Gladiator's publicized nightly patrols have captured the public imagination like no one since the Lone Ranger. With the blare of the horn and the screech of the brake, he gets the bad guys off the road and vanishes into the night, without so much as a high ho silver. Hot rodders, drunk drivers, speeders, anyone out there is fair game for this self-appointed one-man army. Is that all there is to this story? I, for one, join all concerned citizens and the police in deploring the actions of this so-called crusader. And she's there, and she clearly likes um, the Rick, Kent Kenwall's character. And Rick D's character isn't really... There's a lot of Ricks going on in that sentence. His <laughs> character isn't, isn't grabbing her attention. But, um... Uh, so, uh, uh, um, uh, Rick um, and his brother are orphans. And he's been raising his brother for some time. His brother is 15, just got his driver's permit. And he's going to take his brother out um, uh, for, for a drive. And that's the thing. Like, I remember my my parents took me out for a drive once before I got my license. I got in the Crown Victoria LTD. 
and immediately drove the car up onto the next door neighbor's lawn. And my stepdad looked at me and said, you're going to driver's ed. We're not taking you out again. And that's how it happened. And, and that's how I got my license. But, um, uh, uh, Rick is a bit more, he, he's a bit more, uh, giving to his brother. So they go out driving and unfortunately they incur the wrath of this guy. I can't call him the fiddler. What do we call him in this one? Um, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know because as it goes along, it becomes like a Jekyll and Hyde thing where the gladiator is one side of vigilantism and this guy's the other side of it. And I don't know what to call him. I'll call him Tinty. So Tinty um, is, uh, they incur the wrath of Tinty who basically drives them into an intersection where they are hit by, I believe, pretty much like a Mack truck. Oh, yeah. Rick is in a coma and his brother dies. And so as Tinty is doing his thing, picking out random people, killing them for stupid things like, you know, opening the car door too wide and, and hitting his car door, that kind of thing. Uh, Rick is trying to recover, having lost his brother. And Robert Culp is the, um, is the it's Lieutenant Frank Mason. He's the, he's the cop in this one. He's not as bad as, as, um, Peter Graves was, but he, he does have a bit of the, well, we can't really do anything kind of thing. And as the movie goes along, we get a lot of sequences of Rick driving through the streets of LA, just looking at people, watching people, listening to Crocus. And that may be, that may affect you in one way or another. <laughs> I, um, it, it, uh, but, but he, he does this and he, and what eventually happens is, you know, he has he has a friend named Joe who helps him out. And Rick Dees, of course, is there. And uh, Susan is trying to help him out. But, but what ends up happening is there are a couple of events in his life. One is a meeting with a bunch of people who have experienced drunk drivers or reckless drivers um, uh, sort of killing uh, someone in your family, someone close to you kind of thing. And there's a really powerful thing, a scene, I think, where you, you, you have all these people sitting around and they're telling their stories. You know, I lost my son. I lost my brother. I lost this. And, and the woman uh, who's running it is keeping everything in control. But there's one guy who says, like, well, what are we going to do today? Well, yeah. what, well, he says, yeah, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, and she's like, well, we have to do this because, you know, tonight these this many people are going to die. What are we going to do today? And he keeps saying it over and over again. And that really gets into Rick's head. Is there anyone else who'd like to talk now? Well, for those of you who are new to Citizens for Highway Safety, welcome. Many of us in this room tonight, most of us, myself included, are the victims of drunk drivers, the living victims. An average of 70 people are killed in the United States by drunk drivers each day. That's one person dead every 21 minutes. What are we going to do about it? We're going to try to stop it. No. I mean, what are we going to do about it? Tonight, People are going to be killed out on those streets. Just like my son was killed by some maniac, some doped up maniac. Well, what are we going to do tonight? 
to stop those killers, to save those victims. Tragically tonight, yes, the deaths will continue. But in the long run, with all of your help, maybe we will stop it. And get those drunk drivers, especially repeaters, off our roads for good. And then the, the second thing is, he goes to sort of like, um, I wasn't quite sure what this was. It's like a Bob's Big Boy yeah, yeah, restaurant yeah. drive through kind it of looked thing. Like, it looked and, like extras from New Year's Evil, didn't it? <laughs> it did. It did. Yes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> that. Yeah. It looks like the um, there there were a couple of punks from New Year's Evil tickets. Give yeah, me yeah. <laughs> Don't get so tickets. excited, man. Come on, man. <laughs> um, and he kind of we can talk about this. I really love this scene, but but there, he has a couple of scenes that suddenly make him. Even though he started to go out with Susan Nancy Allen's character, he becomes the gladiator. And what he does, it's kind of like the Exterminator 2 where, where, um, oh gosh, what is his? Robert Ginty? Yes, where he fixes up that, like, big dumpster truck thing. Um, it's kind of, it's a variation of that. He fixes up his pickup truck to be, like, souped up. Whereas all kinds of different things on it, and um, well, the main thing, one of the main things, it has a PA on it where he can yell at people, and we can talk about the grappling hook. But but what begins to happen is he becomes a vigilante, and he begins to troll the streets of cruise the streets, I guess, of Los Angeles. Uh, I feel like it's the Valley mainly, um, but I forget now, having said that, um, because I may be mixing that up with a previous film. He's cruising the streets looking for drunk drivers and reckless drivers, and he's driving up alongside them, basically yelling into his PA, citizens arrest, not like Don Knotts says it, citizens, or, or as Gomer Pyle says it, annoying Don Knotts, uh, in Andy Griffith's show, um, citizens arrest, citizens arrest, pull over, and he begins to sort of forcibly, in his new sort of battle truck, pull over drunk drivers and stop people who are out on the road being a menace. And of course, as with all vigilante things, it becomes, you know, on um, on Susan Shaw, it becomes the gladiator. Is he good or bad? I love him. I hate him. I love him. I hate him. And, you know, Robert Culp's like, oh, this guy shouldn't be taking matters into his own hands. And it kind of builds there. But as that's going along, you also have Tinty driving around, kind of killing people randomly. And and there's an interesting point where Robert Culp's character says he this gladiator could be a Jekyll and Hyde character, mm. and it sort of it sort of builds to a point where and I'll I'll stop here where Rick stops a car inappropriately. That's right. And at that point, be, because Susan, who he's starting to kind of fall for, doesn't like the gladiator. Susan and Susan's thoughts and the car that he stopped begins to make him reassess what's going on. I'll leave it there, but I will say that this the movie ends with a final battle. Yeah, maybe it's Knight Rider style, maybe it's Godzilla style, between Tinty and Rick. And I'll just leave it there. So does the gladiator survive? Does he not? I don't know. I, I don't I, I don't know. I don't know. Amanda, what do you think? 
Hey, you know, I think it's okay. You know, I kind of, hey. <laughs> I kind of thought I'd try it out. It was on Amazon, and you know, I had some time to kill and everything, and so I thought I'd, you know, watch it and stuff. And you know, it was okay. So I found this movie um, randomly over the summer when I do my little Amazon searches where I try to find TV movies that are streaming that might be of interest to people, and I thought. Oh my gosh, I've never heard of this. It's got Ken Wall in it. I wonder if this is a TV movie. Because it doesn't always indicate on Amazon if it is. So then I go on to IMDb and I look it up. And it said directed by Abel Ferreira. And I was like, what? I thought, you know what? I'm not doing anything tonight. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch this. So I did. I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't like it as much the second time, I have to be honest. Um, maybe it's a one-time watch for me. It's an intriguing film in some ways because it does kind of come after the sort of our love affair with cars. So like Knight Rider maybe was still on the air when this aired, but like there, there wasn't as many of those car chasey type shows that I can think of offhand. Although I guess Magnum was on and they had car chases and whatever. It's plainer than death car on the freeway. It has car stuff in it, but it's not super grandiose. And I don't know that it's meant to be grandiose because I think you're right. That whole part about the Jekyll and Hyde, I think it's sort of like death wish with a car. Basically. I think maybe it's not meant to raise any kind of controversy like about obviously death wish makes you think about gun control to a large extent and vigilantism. I don't know that this movie is really pushing the envelope that way or, or in any kind of way that I think Abel Ferreira would try to have pushed it if it was a theatrical or if Harvey Keitel <laughs> had played the gladiator. That would have been a whole other thing. Like, like bad Lieutenant as the gladiator. Yes. Remember yes. when he's like standing there naked and screaming. I kept thinking that the whole time. Yep. Yeah, I would have liked that. But, um, but yeah, you know, it's Ken Wall. And that's fine because he's okay in this. I don't think it's a great performance. I don't think it's bad. I actually meant, I feel like an idiot. I didn't look up Wise Guy. I, I, I'm not sure he'd actually done Wise Guy yet. But I don't remember him being this big in Wise Guy. He's like a Mack truck in this. Like, I, like, I don't even understand how, like, the car didn't completely just crush under him. He's so big. Like when he gets in the car, he's just so big. Yes, I just, he is. It's just he is. huge. I'm sorry. It's just, it's in my mind. I can't stop thinking about it. And I don't remember him looking like that in Wise Guy. So I don't know. This was, this was the era of the super buff Ken Wall. But the reason why I'm doing an impression of him is because after his brother dies and his friend played by Stan Shaw, who's a really great character in the movie comes. Oh, he's so good. He's so good. He's good in everything. He goes to fix, uh, the truck for Ken wall. And he, so he puts on a door that doesn't match the rest of the car. And he's got this side part. That's a different color. And Ken wall kind of loses it because the, it was like his brother died in this car, but there was sort of this gesture that, that he could, the truck is still here. And, and he fixed it for him. You know, it's just this thing that Stan Shaw's character mm-hmm. is trying to do as a friend. And so Ken Wall kind of loses it. And then he's like, hey, you want to go get a burger or whatever? And then Ken Wall's like, oh, you know, I got to go to this meeting and everything. And I was like, <laughs> I just got stuck on that sentence. You don't hang around the house all day? You want to go get something to eat? Like, I'll even pay for it, huh? No, I don't think so. You know, I got that meeting to go to and everything. So, like, so like for the rest <laughs> of the movie, I just wanted to, like, talk like Ken Wall. Because it sounds like... <laughs> It sounds like he never spent a day in L.A. It sounds like he yes. was in Brooklyn, and then they said, hey, you do want to live in L.A. for six months with your brother and and maybe become a vigilante along the way? And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. And so, like, and they just drop him off, and he just doesn't fit into the L.A. scene to me at all. So, like, he, his character really stands out to me. But overall, I think it's a watchable movie one time. 
Mm. I just don't know that it gets its points across as well as it should. And I don't think it's as captivating as Death Car on the Freeway. But but there are things to enjoy. And I, and I don't want to diminish Ken Wall. I think he's fine in the part. But but I think the other actors are maybe better. I think, like, obviously Robert Culp is great in everything. And, like, everything he does feels so, like, like he's acting. Like you're watching an actor work. You know what I mean? There's just something about him that's compelling. And Stan Shaw's just a natural. So, I mean... You know, so yeah, it's okay. I don't know if I have a lot to say about it. Hey, you know, I think it's okay. You know. Hey, uh, huh? The first time I watched this, I didn't like it nearly as much as as Death Car on the Freeway. The second time I watched it, I really liked it quite a bit. I I, I really like Ken Wall in it. I like the fact that I, I I'm I'm look I'm sorry I'm looking at um uh Merrill right now movies made for TV eight, 64 to 86 and I'm on page 164 and it says this is a pilot to prospective series oh yeah and to me to me in some respects it feels like that and that's the uh that's um Tinty uh Tinty is kind of like you know if it was like Night Rider season where you would have uh, you know, um, him go up against like the other Knight Rider esque things or something like that. You know, or or the Incredible Hulk where you'd have him go up against like the other uh, another Hulk or something like that. You know, that that's kind of what the Tinty felt like that to me. But the thing about the way the film ends is it doesn't feel like it ends like the perspective pilot for anything. It feels yeah. like it ends and ends. And I I just love the concept that like. Like the producer and writer were like, "Okay, Abel, do this," and and he looked at him and said, "You call me Mr. Ferrara, and um, <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this my way," and he does it his way, and it's it it, it doesn't feel like because because I thought the for a perspective pilot the ending would have been and I don't know if you know how far we'll uh, but 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 I thought the ending would have been oh the gladiator got away. We'll get him next time, kind of thing. Well, I wonder if he's supposed to align with the police, and then they're going to take away the vigilante angle, and so then he just becomes like oh. a citizen working for the police, okay. helping them with certain car crimes, maybe. Because I don't think you can have. A, okay, so here I'll use an, I'll use another example. I don't think you can have a show about a vigilante and expect people to watch it, especially in the Reagan eighties. Mm-hmm. Although that's debatable because of bernie gets and everything and um but like there is a show called poor devil it was a tv movie called poor devil which we will cover on here eventually because it's amazing it stars um sammy davis jr sure. as a sort of minion of satan oh, yeah. played by christopher lee yes, yes yeah and his yeah. job is to he has to get at least one soul and so they send him up and he ends up trying to get jack klugman to sell his soul to him and that was a pilot sure. right and the, the the movie's fine, you know, but then they were like, well, can we really make a TV series based off Satan coming and taking people's souls? Like, because they can't week, get them yeah. back. Yeah, they can't get them back every week, right? Like, because in the movie, not to be too spoilery, but everything works out for everybody. But it's like, it's like you can't just do that every week and expect people to show up. And already it's controversial, right? Making a show where the protagonist is like freaking Satan, right? So like... <laughs> Now you could do it. Now they have Lucifer, right, or whatever. But like, like in the seventies, that was just not something that was going to take off on network TV. So I kind of think that if it was a pilot, they would have to dilute the Abel Ferrera isms yes. that are in it. 
And there yes. are, we'll talk about that. There are similarities to his other films in here. I, th- I think that that was my thought when I watched it, that to, to me it was like, you want me to make a pilot, which has to have a kind of open ending. F that. I'm making this, which has an ending. And But they would have, if, if it got picked up, you know that someone would have come along and gone, okay, we'll just rewrite the end of that and we'll tweak this and it'll be fine. Yeah, there's yeah. no there's no issue. Thing I, <laughs> I, I I do love about the movie is that um it the the obviously the, uh, most of the stunt sequences aren't nearly as interesting as they are in Death Car and the Freeway because those are in broad daylight. These are all in the yeah. dark, so you can hide you can hide stuff in the dark. But there are moments like there that moment with the couple who ding the side of the Tinty's car where like they drive out and like three cars are suddenly spinning around in an intersection, which are crazy. Um, so there are moments in this, which are pretty great. Um, but, but the thing I do love about it is just, I love after his brother dies when he drives around and he's just driving around Mm. and driving around. And yes, I know Dan, you just like it because he's listening to Crocus. Knock it off, all right? Knock it off. No, no. I think they're really good scenes. I think to me they're like variations of like Driller Killer, like um, sort of in out in this world, sort of. And he's just driving and just looking at all these spaces and and just uh, like driving through the Hughes parking lot. I haven't been at a Hughes supermarket in like 15 years. Are there any Hughes supermarkets around anymore? I don't know. But when he drove through that, I was like, and it's just, oh, it's just like, I love the, the feel. And it's, it's very un-TV movie to me at times. Um, in, in the same way that some of the big stunt sequences in Death Car are, are outside of the realm of where normally TV movies go. Apart from escape, I'm kidding, of course. But 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 you know it, 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 the big stunt sequences and these long, languid sequences of just songs playing and him driving are just so so able for our to me, and and I just um, I, I I I I can't say that I love the movie, but after the second viewing, I really liked it. And I'm glad it didn't become a series because I'm I'm glad it ended where it ended. Yeah, I think I agree. I agree. I don't think I think they would have had to dilute it and it would have been as good. It would have been just like any other yeah, show. It stunk. Yeah. But um, yeah. yeah, but this movie does do interesting things. As a matter of fact, it kind of takes it different places because, like, I compare it to Death Wish. But to be honest, he was super into being a vigilante. Here, there's like a there's more of a struggle. I think if memory serves. Yes. With um, yeah. with yeah. yeah with what he's doing and he's he's trying so like of course you were talking about the grappling hook so he does these crazy things so like so like if you're driving him properly hook. or something he will take a grappling hook and he will like drag your car to the side of the road and then he will call the police right and so yeah. so like what he's doing is basically for the greater good he is definitely the good guy in the situation because he he's he's putting grappling hooks through people's windows but he's not trying to hurt anybody and he's trying yes. to like, like literally help the police do their job because there's just not enough police officers to monitor all the crazy freaking drivers on the road. When he is the gladiator, all his calls are like, 
he goes directly into the police um, line on the, yeah. on the CB. Or I, I, I don't know if it's a CB in 1986. I, I'm still thinking 1979. But he goes directly to the police line. And he's like, I've got this car and this car. They're driving drunk. They're on, you know, um, I don't know, Balboa and Victory. Come and pick them up kind of thing. So, so he's like, he's literally trying to help. But it, it, that that's not really the way it works doesn't he report one doesn't he report one and they're like get off the police line yes yeah yeah the woman comes on and says who are you yeah he said who are you yeah. and he says i just got these i i pulled these drunk drivers over they're they're by the side of the road they're two cars you'll find them here uh you shouldn't be on this line you need to tell us who you are and get off this line and he says i'm the gladiator gladiator yeah, yeah. which he got like from a tire or something. Didn't he see like a tire or something <laughs> laying next to him? And he's just like, I'm the glad, I'm the gladiator, you know? I'm the gladiator. Hey, 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 hey. Pulled over this car, hey. you know? Hey, oh, hey, oh. <laughs> um, That's kind of what he does. That's his whole thing. And then like, yeah. Um, you know, but like he does these things and it's, it's, it, there is a story happening and, and it, it's asking questions and whatever and whatever. But like, um, I don't know. Like, what did you think of the romance between him and Nancy Allen? Um, I thought that, okay, I, I, uh, unjustifying myself or justifying myself, but I feel like if, if it had gone to a series that may have become something that, that Mm, may have developed into something because it's, because that's the thing is like, I, what I've read is that, like I said, it was a perspective pilot, but I don't feel like it was, but there are bits of it. Like I said, Tinty is very much like you got to give like like Man from Atlantis, the first Man from Atlantis TV movie. You introduce Patrick Duffy, but then he goes up against Mr. Schubert, played by Victor Buono. You have to have the the nemesis or the villain there. Sure, so I got me, it. Tinty to me to me Tinty is the nemesis and Gladiator. Um, it's also kind of his dark side. Did did you think he looked like Prince? Who, Victor Bono? No, the guy that they cut into. Oh, oh, um, I don't know. You see him so briefly. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Maybe a little, like, yeah. It was maybe, Prince. It was, it was Prince. Prince. No, come on. Had he done um, Graffiti Bridge yet? That's when you pull him out of a car like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But I mean, everything you're saying, everything you're saying, like you're laying out like the subtext really well and it's there. But I just feel like maybe it, the, there's something not connecting for me in terms of involvement into it, into those things. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I um. okay, yeah, I don't, I, what about that friggin' grappling hook? I don't know. I don't know if I had anything else. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, there's uh, things to like about the movie, and I I wouldn't deter people from seeing it. It's on Amazon. It's kind of a rare TV movie, I think, because I never heard of it before. I'm not saying other people had, and I think it's actually had some kind of home video release. But it's directed by Abel Ferreira. That makes it interesting in and of yeah. itself. I think it's pre-Wise Guy Ken Wall, so you even have this early performance between the Wanderers, right? I think that was the thing he got famous in, and yeah, Wise Guy. In between there... Right. You've got you've got this kind of curio where he's actually working with Abel Ferreira. So, I mean, it's worth saying. Yeah. And 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 the interesting thing is that death car on the freeway is all on film uh, and the gladiator is is film transferred to video edited on video so you get a bit of a different um, uh, vibe. Yeah. You know what I did like, though? I like those scenes that were look like the car was on a set. 
yeah, where it's the it's the voices um, going over and over again. And there's like a car on the set, like moving back and forth. Yeah, that's so weird. Yeah, it's like a puppet car. Yeah, yeah, it, it's so it's so obviously fake that I feel like it's it's he 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 knew it was he he knew that's what it was. I I believe that I believe that it's cool yeah. though. It's a really neat effect because it's just so weird. But you know, I guess in a way, it's, it's kind really of a surreal strange. movie. So. It kind of adds to that because he's kind of out of his mind, right? So like, because he like, he's dealing with grief, and so like things are different, and it kind of maybe captures this sort of off-centeredness that he's feeling himself. And there's 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 the thing too, like if you're dealing with the ho- horrible grief like that, is just those moments when it goes so slow and um, languid almost, and just I don't want to say crocus scream in the night is languid, but but there's like you hear that song for like four minutes, you know, as he's driving and he's just driving and driving, and it's just like it puts you if if you really get into it, it puts you in a space where it's like. Where the hell am I? You know, is this this isn't fun? <laughs> well, this is an Abel Ferrara film. I, I've seen Ms. Forty Five. I've seen Bad Lieutenant and Driller Killer. I don't have fun watching those films. I, I I enjoy them. I love them, but I I I don't know that I have fun watching them. So yeah, no, there is not a fun filmmaker. Yeah, it, I I love I I, I was almost uh, uh, part of my mind went to a uh, combat shock. A buddy, G- mm. Giovanas, I, I don't know how to say his full name. You just there. call him Buddy G. Everybody calls him Buddy G. Yes, I almost went to that space um, at, at times where it was like you you get um, you you get in this sort of languid, sad space where you're not you're not happy, and and you're you're trying to find your way out of something. And that's what he does by putting this freaking grappling hook on the back of his truck. Hello, that's all we need, baby. That's all we need. Yeah. Grappling hook also, like, <laughs> but you know what? Also, him building his truck was kind of cool. Like, there's that whole montage of yes. him putting all the yeah. bells and whistles on his truck, and it's. And I was like, you know, I don't know anything about cars, and I don't really have a desire to. But it, it must be so cool to know all that stuff, like to know how to do those yes. things. And trick out your car. That must be really cool. Yes, I've always thought like 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 being a like knowing biology or, or chemistry or things like that. Knowing how a car works must be so awesome. And, yeah, it must and, be really cool. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm just going to bring up one more Ken Wall thing um, that to, uh, that I love. I, 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 what I love I love the. Two of the moments I absolutely love with him because I've never quite seen this in another film, but maybe I'll I have in an Abel F film. I'm calling him Abel F now. Is that when he wakes up from his coma, the doctor is there. You've just woken up from a coma. Where's my brother? Your brother has died, and we want to actually get out of here. Well, we get out of here, and the doctor's like, okay, and he leaves. And then when Robert Culp shows up, he's like, okay, tell me what's going on. This is what happened. Well, what about this? Well, this. Well, what about this? Get out of here. Get out. <laughs> and he, he throws out his physician and he throws out the, the, the cop in charge of the case. I've never seen that before. Usually you keep <laughs> them in. To, but, but he's like, both times he's like, get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> 
Hey, hey, get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out. If my wife was here, she could do the get out of here better than I could get out of here. Here's the, here's the thing about Gladiator at the end of the day. It's definitely worth a viewing. If you like Abel, Abel F., it's probably worth two viewings. I, I think he does a, a good job for a TV movie. It ain't as elaborate as Death Car on the Freeway and those crazy-ass stunts in daylight. But um, he's up to something. But he's also, like we said, he's also apparently doing a pilot, uh, a TV movie pilot. So there are other things going on that, that Hal Needham didn't have to work with. So, True. yeah. True. I, um, I don't know that I have a favorite of these two films, actually, because thinking about them, I, I quite like both of them in, in different ways, but that's the joy of it. We're at different spectrum, spectrums of the, of the TV movie, I think, here. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you liked it because I'm more iffy on it. And so it's really great to hear somebody like kind of cheerlead it because that's what yeah, we do here, right? So that worked out really well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's worth the watch because it's on Amazon. If you have an Amazon Prime account, go stream it and watch it and see how you feel about it. Um, if nothing else, you know, Ken Wallace built like a Mack truck. And he's a hog. He's a hog. He's got, he's got, he's got great eyes and he's yeah, a there's, hog. There's yeah. nothing I can say negative about that guy, but like... <laughs> nothing but like um mm-hmm. but like yeah you know just if you just have nothing to do yeah hey, check it <laughs> i know people are listening hey, now and they're like stop amanda so i'm gonna i'm officially stopping <laughs> the gladiator talk back talk and um let me just say a little bit about the film it aired on february 3rd yes. 1986 on abc it came in at number 32 for the week i don't know how it did for the season i couldn't find that it ran against two miniseries, so this was a big night. On NBC was Peter the Great. It was part two of a four-part miniseries. On CBS, though, was Sins, which is the fabulous Joan Collins miniseries. They aired part two of three. By the Oh, hell and yeah. And that movie, I'm pretty sure, was a blockbuster. I think that was the big movie that or miniseries the week that aired. It's so good. So good. I can't even tell you how good it is. But anyway, so apparently, so here's a here's a piece of information that contradicts Merrill. Apparently, Gladiator was originally a theatrical film bought by Showtime Network, but premiered on ABC. Don't ask me where I got that from because I didn't know that source. What? Yeah, I got that from like Variety or something. Um, Ferreira said, it's just a little car crash movie I made in two weeks to get some money to write a screenplay. So I don't know that his heart was necessarily in it, but, and we'll get to him in a second, he didn't do, well, I mean, we'll get to the themes in a second. He didn't do too much TV, He's, but he is known for his work on Crime Story. I feel like he might have did the pilot, but I know he did at least a really good episode of Crime Story. And he directed at least one Miami Vice. You know, his even in his TV, I think, work, you can see the sort of gritty aesthetic. Um, and I mentioned here just real briefly that he collaborated often, which is only twice, it turns out, with a woman named Zoe Tamerlis, who's also known as Zoe Lund. And and um, he had actually like a stable, they used to call him Able Stable. So I guess he used a lot of the same people over and over again in his work. And Zoe Tamerlis didn't want to be part of Able Stables. And so she broke out on her own and then came back to him to do Bad Lieutenant, which she co-wrote, by the way, which is wicked when you think about it. And then I went down a Zoe Lund rabbit hole today at work looking this stuff up because I have a reference shift and it was really quiet. So I was just doing my research and I was like, I'm just going to research the crap out of this woman. Cause every time I think about her, I have to read everything about her. But anyway, so Kim Newman wrote a review of uh gladiator for monthly film bulletin, which is a London based uh, sort of trade magazine that used to exist. I don't think it still exists. And he said that gladiator actually does hit on some of 
Ferreira's earlier filmic tropes. That is revenge, urban victim turning to violence for revenge. And um, there's always a gray area with the protagonist who's often an anti-hero. So what we're seeing here is actually very, as Dan astutely pointed out, able. We're looking at a Ferrara joint, you know, and so even if it's made for TV and it feels a little played down, his those themes that he was struggling with, not struggling with, I should say exploring early on and later in his career are here um, in a TV movie, which is really fascinating. Um, yes. And, of course, this is an early film for him. It came after Fierce City and the year before China Girl. Oh, so, yeah, wow. this is pretty early. So this was not well-liked. Um, Variety said what ga- Gladiator wow. lacks is suspense, plausibility, interest, good characterization, and logic. What it has... Balls! What it, Balls! What it has is a lack of credibility <laughs> and a plot which is both dull and monotonous. You can write them a letter... Uh, I think it was a 1986 issue of Variety. Why don't you go ahead and write a letter to the editor? Baloney loaf. Uh, I don't agree. So the screenwriter was also the co-producer, and he did a lot of stuff. I pulled his TV movie career. So he had a kind of neat – so he was into Cars because his first produced script was The Hearse, which was Vanderveer. Then he did predominantly TV movies, including A Smoky Mountain Christmas with – Lee Majors and Dolly Parton, but he also did The Midnight Hour, which we've covered on here, which is a great Halloween-themed TV movie. Oh, yeah. He did he oh. did Kathleen Beller's Deadly Messages, which we also covered on here, which we, we oh. also really like. And he did The Stepford Children with Barbara Eden, which is an awful lot of fun. And then he would go on to become a writer on Poltergeist, the Legacy TV series. And he did other stuff, too, but those are the ones that st- stood out to me as... Oh, he also did From the Dead of Night, which I think is that... Lindsay Wagner, like, three-hour TV movie that aired in the 80s where she almost dies, and it turns out she was supposed to go to the other side, but because she didn't, they keep trying to bring her back. But they're actually using the bodies of people who have died, so these people are actually dead but don't realize it. Oh, I love it Yeah, it's a three-hour TV movie. Like, it aired in a three-hour time slot. That's You can have an epic movie like that. They don't all have to be 90 minutes. We can be... (laughs) Two hours yeah, and if, if we do cover that one, we'll just do that movie because it's so long. But um, yes. <laughs> I think Bruce Boxleitner's in it. Somebody really hunky's in it. Sure. So Ken Wall retired from acting in 1996. Oh, here's where we get to talk about some of my favorite things. So, well, here's the sad part first. So Ken Wall, <laughs> Ken Wall quit acting because he actually broke his neck. Did you know that? He fell down a flight of stairs at his girlfriend's house and broke his neck. It took two and a half years to learn to walk. And his last screen appearance oh, was a Wise no. Guy TV movie in 1996. Did you know that he's married to a Barbie twin? Do you remember the Barbie twins? Yeah. yeah he's married to yeah. one of them. But here's the neat part. They're animal rights activists, both of them. And I read, and they're also fight for veterans rights to help veterans who've been kind of left behind. But the animal stuff really struck me. But here, I just want, I pulled this from Wikipedia. This is just one of the things that Kenwell has done for animals. This blew my mind and I think it's beautiful and I love him for it. On January 19th, 2010, Kenwell offered his Golden Globe Award as part of a reward then being assembled by the Second Chance Rescue Center in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to help find and convict the person who glued a seven-month-old orange tabby to Minnesota, Minnesota State Highway 60, where travelers found it on December 18, 2009. The cat, which rescuers called Timothy, died days later. Ken Wall offered his award 
to get people to come forward. And I don't know how it turned out, and I Good probably should have followed that up. But you know what I mean? Like, that's awesome yeah. that he did that in yeah. Sioux Falls, you know, someplace he's probably never been. Yeah. You know, because he was so moved by what happened. And and so I guess his wife also, I'm not sure which, which I don't know their names, the Barbie twins, but whichever one he's married to, this is what they do. And that makes them so incredibly awesome to me. Like, I almost cried reading that. I was like, that's so cool. But now on to Rick D's. Whatever. Uh, yeah. Can, okay, go ahead. Can, oh, can I just say? Can, sure. I was just going to say, Rick. Well, my, my um, when when I when I mentioned him to my wife, she says, "Oh yes, he was on uh, Wise Guy." And um, uh, right, I, I I don't actually watch that. I don't want to um, give the wrong show. Um, but yeah, uh, he he was on that, and um, and he had dreamy eyes. <laughs> and he's an animal rescuist. And he's and, and and then she said like and I don't know what happened to him after that. Now we know. Yeah, now we know. And I will tell he's, her. I will. He's tell doing her. good things with his life, and I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. so I just pulled this paragraph from Rick D's biography on Wikipedia because I think this captures. So Rick D's was a, a man who wore many hats. Um, he did a lot of stuff. He still is a DJ. He looks exactly the same as he did in 1986, which blows my mind. Um, he is a People's Choice Award recipient, a Grammy-nominated performing artist, and broadcast Hall of Fame inductee. He wrote two songs that appear in the film Saturday Night Fever, plus performed the title song for the film Meatballs, which I didn't know. He co-founded the EW Scripps television network Fine Living, now the Cooking Channel, and has hosted Rick D's in the morning at 102.7 KISS FM and Hot 92.3 in Los Angeles. Today, he continues his own syndicated daily, rock sh- daily radio show, Daily D's, and the syndicated Rick D's Weekly Talk. 40 countdown and he freaking sang disco duck yes that's where i made and he had remember. a nighttime talk show do you remember his nighttime talk show oh yes i do remember yes. yep, yep, yep. so I like he did that. he's yep, done yep. everything this man has done every and he's in an abel ferrera movie which is awesome that's i mean when i remember going to see bad lieutenant in Ithaca, New York, when I was in college, and it was like NC-17, this is a rough one, and I, I was sitting there the whole time just thinking, Disco Duck, yeah, come on, yeah. Mm, yeah that was your happy on. place. Yeah. yeah. Oh, if that's right. If only Rick Dees had played in Bad Lieutenant, that would have been a whole other film. That would have been that Port of Call oh, movie. Could that you? I, I, can I, I, I can see the poster with Harvey Keitel taken over by Rick Dees. Oh. Standing there. <laughs> oh, that's oh, why did something. that happen? Abel, hey, why did that happen? <laughs> so, and the only noted so Nancy Allen, we all know who Nancy Allen is. She was in Carrie. She was in a bunch yes, of De Palma of movies because they were mar- not because they were married because she's a good actress. Oh, but dressed to kill, blow yeah, up. Yeah, she's yes, wonderful. Yes. Oh. But did you know Nancy Allen starred in the first original made for Lifetime TV movie titled Memories of Murder, which also co-starred Vanity, which might explain why Prince is in wow. the end of Gladiator. <laughs> that it all makes sense. I didn't realize why you mentioned that earlier. No, it yeah. all makes sense. Memories of Murder is a really, really weird movie. So I watched it because I did a commentary for a movie called Death Dreams with Christopher Reeve, and that's a very early original Lifetime movie, and or Lifetime original. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do a Lifetime movie, I should talk about the first Lifetime movie ever produced, and it was Memories of Murder. So I just saw it like four months ago. And it's a really oddball movie where Nancy Allen plays a woman who 
I think just like basically wakes up one day and has no memory of what she'd been doing for like two years. And she's all of a sudden married with like a stepdaughter. And she had lived this sort of like more sexy life beforehand. It's like, it's almost like an erotic thriller. It doesn't feel like a lifetime movie at all. And anyway, she's being pursued by a man who's actually a woman in drag played by Vanity. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really strange. Wow. It's a really strange little movie. And so, anyway, she's in that. And that's all the trivia I have for Gladiator. So those are our movies. Okay. We say, They were yeah. fun. I thought they were super fun. Yeah, right? yeah, car porn. What's not fun about car porn? What, what's not to love yeah. about them? I mean... I, I've been a car car chase fan all my life, and, and these two were super fun. And I love the fact that we get the tinted windows in both of the movies. and the, But one is day, one right. is night, one is Jekyll, one is Hyde, yeah. one is Ken Wall. Yeah. I don't know. You know, uh, Wall, Wall. I keep saying Wall. Why do I put a U in his name? I don't know. I don't know, but it's, uh, that's me. I know that I'm no, I'm no Ken Wall. So I am I denigrate slightly when I do that, and I apologize to Mr. Wall. You know, because I know the good work is. I went to a bar once, and it was like a sports bar, which I hate. And I was sitting in the sports bar, <laughs> and the bartender looked like Ken Wall, and he was serving wow. my drinks. It was I was with my friend and maybe somebody else, and we were leaving, and I didn't even know how we got there. It was my my friend took us there. It was somewhere in the outskirts of Las Vegas. <laughs> And he leans over and he says to me, can you come back later tonight? And I never did. Oh. Wow. And he looked like Ken Wall. I kid you not. That was a, that was a, that was a, could you, what podcast would I be recording with you right now? <laughs> if you had I'm followed back. up. <laughs> that, well, I don't know. Yeah, the world would have changed. Oh my God. And I, I just want to say that I, I love Nancy Allen. But I prefer her in the late seventies, early eighties, when her hair wasn't as big. Yeah. Some some gals, some gals, when their hair went big, like Lisa Loring, <laughs> her hair being big is hot. But Nancy Allen, her hair needed to be smaller. I just say that. I just say that. You because know, funny. We talk the, about big hair, but we never say small hair. So I've never heard that before. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, because I I just re I I actually rewatched um uh Dressed to Kill. Oh, she's about so beautiful ago. in that movie. She's g absolutely gorgeous in that. And and then I watched this twice between then, and I was like, oh, I love her. But this is her around the time of RoboCop ish, and and her I don't some some women the big hair is good, some not so much, and yeah, love you, Nancy, rock on. And now it's time for feedback. So why don't we get to our feedback then? So Sure, yes. Okay, so on Facebook, Mark Jordan said, She didn't get a lot of love in her one season on Charlie's Angels, but I do like Shelly Hack. Glad you're covering Death Car on the Freeway. For the other Hack fans, how about Single Bar, Single Women? I say yes. It is on Amazon Prime. Everybody should see it. It's really good. Kenneth Smith wrote, how about the California Kid? I think that's the title with Martin Sheen. So that's a definite car porn movie. I think it takes place in the 50s where um, Martin Sheen is like this James Dean type who ends up in this sort of uh, speed trap town. Chicken Run? Yeah, I think. Oh, oh. No, it's a speed trap town. And I think Vic Morrow okay. is the sheriff. Oh, wow. And and 
Oh, my God. What is Martin Sheen's brother's name? Why did I just forget it? Joe Estevez. Emilio Estevez. Joe Joe Estevez plays the victim at the beginning, and he's Martin Sheen's brother. And so Martin Sheen's come to the town looking for revenge. It's called The California Kid. I believe it's on DVD. It's very good. Everybody should see it. It's got a really early appearance by, I'm forgetting his name, but he's in 48 Hours. Zero Mostel. Oh, no, uh, Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte. Eddie Murphy. Yes. Uh, Nick Nolte? Is it Nick Nolte? It's Nick Nolte. He has a very early oh, performance. Really? Nick okay. Yeah. I was like, I could see him in my head, and I thought, oh, my God, I just drew a blank. <laughs> I can't remember. Okay. So Josh Griffiths wrote, um, I used to think The Car was a TV movie until I saw it on a list of most profitable films of the year. I remember staying up late to watch it on primetime TV. Yeah, a lot of people think The Car is a TV movie. It kind of feels like that. We have some email. So what we have here is we have a piece of audio feedback, and then we have a couple more uh, follow-ups to that. All of this is coming from our friend Stan Peel. So here's the audio feedback. Hey, Amanda, Dan, Nate, this is Stan Peel. I am not a car guy, but I am definitely an Abel Ferreira guy. Now, I have to admit that liking his work affected how I saw this movie. In a way, Gladiator is the kinder, gentler revenge flick, uh, atoning for his earlier theatrical film, uh, Ms. 45. A brutal, weird, and by-the-numbers rape-revenge movie. Now, later, Ferreira breaks past the revenge genre with Bad Lieutenant, which starts with all the elements of a revenge movie, but becomes a psychotically brilliant treatise on forgiveness and redemption. He pulls out all the civilized stops, and parts of it are very, very hard to watch. But because of that... It's a truly effective examination of forgiveness and redemption. Now, having seen Ms. 45 and Bad Lieutenant, putting the gladiator in the middle creates a perfect trilogy. Now, part of what makes it so is Ken Wall. He is absolutely cool and grounded, and he's got a good heart. So when he goes into revenge mode, it's it's for totally understandable reasons, and his behavior almost never seems excessive given what he's been through, although the toe javelin could really take an eye out or more likely an entire head. Uh, but he seems to have pretty good aim. Now, I, I am a little bummed that we didn't get a training sequence where we get to see him practice with that thing. But I understand the value of revealing the truck modifications as we go. And he is easily and reasonably pulled back from the brink when he accidentally attacks the wrong couple. And here's where Ferreira gets to have it both ways. And here's where I go into spoilers. Uh, Wall realizes that revenge isn't going to get his brother back, so he turns himself in. But before he has a chance, he encounters his enemy on the road and gets to have the final battle that we all wanted. And it's a great battle. Uh, The revelation of the bad guy was a surprise to me. I I was almost certain it would be the angry guy from the group therapy meeting, but it was just some random dude. Now, I thought this was an interesting choice, because if it were the guy from the meeting, that would suggest an ordered universe where we have all the elements to solve a problem. But a random killer suggests a chaotic universe where anything can happen. It makes sense that Ferreira would prefer the latter, because clearly his other movies show a belief in a brutal, unpredictable world. Now, as crazy as the modified cars were, I thought the film was nicely grounded in reality. The only thing that wasn't realistic was that no one giving a description of the gladiator mentioned those eyebrows. So, Stan, we'll do this before we read your uh, written feedback. Um, I thought it was interesting that you said Miss 45 was a by-the-numbers revenge flick, because I don't think that's how I see it. 
Um, uh, me, me neither. Yeah, that's a. Uh... Not there's anything wrong with that because you know you're bringing up a lot of good points and and putting it at the Gladiator as part of a trilogy, um, and then sort of explaining why makes it really fascinating. Something I really like that you said here in your feedback is that you liked it being a random person because it showed the chaotic universe as compared to an ordered universe where we have all the elements to solve a problem. And that's really interesting. And I guess we could almost say that about both films, right? Because both films are just random people doing things to random other people and nobody knows why. And there, there, there is that that strange moment where you, 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 um, where Shelley Hack gets into the 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 uh, Death Cars room, and he has all this stuff on his wall, and then you see Ken Wall with all this stuff on his <laughs> the wall, wall. On the wall too. Yeah, yeah. So, so you get these moments where it's like they're they're not too 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 far apart from one another. Yeah. Um. But uh, but yeah. Different I'm approaches. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. One one is hunkier, and the other won't show his face. Show your face. If you're a hunk, we'll love you. Rock it, you know? Well, to be fair, there's this band called Portal. They're this death metal band, and they perform with things over their heads, so you never know what they look like. And one day I worked <laughs> at a film festival here that also was a music fest, and I was a volunteer, and I worked on, like, checking in the VIPs. And the lead singer Portal comes in, and he's like, hey, I'm the lead singer Portal. He's an Australian accent. He says, I am the lead singer Portal. Good day. I'm the lead singer Portal. There's some <laughs> shrimp on the Barbie. Could you give me my VIP? Yeah, could you give me my VIP pass? And he is movie star handsome. Like, my jaw hit the floor when I saw wow. him. And I was like, wow, you're gorgeous. And so I went to go see Portal that night because I had a free pass to see any event there. And he just had a thing over his head. And I'm like, dude, why are you doing that? So some people do cover up the hunkiness. Yes. Hmm. I wish I could cover up my hunkiness, but I would <laughs> no, be lying do to the world. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. So Stan Peel also sent two more pieces of written feedback. So he kind of was yes. watching Death Car on the Freeway and then was writing as he was watching it, which is kind of fun. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So he wrote. Holy moly, no idea on the killer here either. I think George Hamilton was leading a double life as John Evans, a.k.a. The Fiddler. Interesting vehicular take on the slasher movie. Nice touch with the creepy doll in the pan of the fiddler's room. Ew. Not surprised to see one of uh, the Epper clan was among the stunt drivers. Gary Epper, his sister Jeannie Epper, is a famous stunt woman having double for Lindsay Wagner on Bionic Woman. Tanya Roberts on Charlie's Angels and Linda Evans on Dynasty. I was hoping she was Sybil Shepard's stunt driver. She worked all the way up till 2015. Oh, he meant to say Shelley Hack there. He actually says that later. Have fun recording. Cheers. Dr. Glass, psychological profiler. He's easily threatened, unsure of his masculinity. You have just described every male character in this movie. But my money's on George Hamilton. Okay, so I'm reading these out of order. So I'm not sure what order they're in. But it, he was writing to me before he <laughs> before he knew who the killer was. So he said it was George Hamilton. Let's do it. Let's then he realized it. that it wasn't George Hamilton. And then he added, sorry, one more thought. I finished the movie this morning, and it's really been sticking with me. It's way better than I thought, I guess, based on the goofy title. Um, and that it's so hard to find. What I think I meant by it being a vehicular slasher, I guess you could say that about most Road Mayhem movies, I don't know, I haven't seen that many of them, but they seem to be about general violence, though usually testosterone-driven. This movie was specifically about violence against women, which I think is the basic metaphor most good slashers are built on. But in Death Car, it's about as clear as you can ever get from the dismissive nature of just about every guy in the film to Peter Graves' infuriating claim that the victims were partly responsible. 
So I'm reading my mind there. The writer also found a way to make sense out of the two situations that are usually left to bad character decisions in TV magic. Her trip into biker land to meet Sid Haig's writer crew was truly frightening. And I would normally be yelling at her, you can't go in there alone. But she absolutely had no one, even the police, to turn to for help by that time. And that's true. Beautiful. And her, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful and her victory on the road at the end was directly attributable to her work with the driving instructor. So again, totally. Hell made them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the driving instructor, I love the fake out where you think she's finally being stalked, but it turns out to yes. be him. Yes. Really well yes. created. I forgot Shelly Hack was so sweet, and I still think George Hamilton did it. P.S. I think I called Shelly Hack <laughs> Simple Shepherd in an early email. That's what I get for writing too fast. No, these were yeah. great. He wrote out a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff in here, and he, I guess he sort of backed yeah, my perfect. argument. But, um, yeah, like, um, the biker bar is an important scene. But not only can she not, like, has no one to turn to, but I would argue that she has every right to go there alone, too, right? Like, yeah. she shouldn't feel threatened. I mean, she does. It's scary. Yeah. But, like, there's this idea that women aren't supposed to go into certain places by themselves. Yeah. And she defies that at every turn, right? And yeah. so, and I think that that backs her as a strong character, but also I think that's also commenting on this idea that women should be allowed to go where they want, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, th- yeah, I, I think I, I said so long ago that I, I think she's she's perfect in that scene because they're they're gonna give her the raz, they're gonna like honk at her, what the the old douchebags. Like who are drunk by the side of the um, uh, club are going to honk at her, but the actual people who called her there, who are in charge, respect her yeah. and are not going to give her trouble. Um, so, 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 so we may think they are, but come on. The moment Sid Haig walks up, like I said an hour and a half ago, yeah, we're good. <laughs> yeah pretty much so thank you stan that was pretty insightful all of it yes thank you stan thank yeah you. that was great um and so let me just tell you what's coming up next and how you get in touch with us so we actually have a couple episodes coming up we're at the end of this month is the end and i don't know if this is coming up when this episode's going up but um at the end of this november we are going to be giving away a blu-ray copy of don't be afraid of the dark and a Blu-ray copy of Bad Ronald to one person, and we're having them send in different, um, like the, what they would do with their favorite TV movie, House, um, and how they would make a new movie with it. And so we're going to have a special episode where we'll read a few of those out, and then we'll draw a name out of a hat. But we're also going to be doing our annual Christmas episode where we always have Joanna Wilson on for yes. Christmas TV history, yes. one of our favorite people in the world. So um, fun. Yeah, when she comes on, we are going to play the Christmas game, which if you haven't listened to old episodes, oh, boy. yeah, it's just where she comes up with a pretty generic Christmas title that's real. And then we have to figure out what the movie's about, and then she tells us what it's about. And that's a lot of fun. And we're also going to yes. cover, I'm really excited to do this, we're going to cover the DuPont show with June Allison. They did a Christmas episode called A Silent Panic from 1960, which starred Harpo Marx in a dramatic turn. Oh, and yes. it's so good. Oh, it's so good. Oh God, it's only yeah, a half yeah. hour long. It's actually online. There's an archive that digitized it. And so you can watch the whole thing. It's beautiful. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, and if you want to talk to us about anything we've covered or what we're going to cover, or you just have some comments about the show, you can reach us at Twitter at Made for TV Mayhem. That's our same handle on Instagram. Again, it's at Made for TV Mayhem. We're on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem show. 
or just find look for don't look for at look for made for tv mayhem show and then we're on gmail uh you can email us tv mayhem podcast at gmail.com or feel free to visit us at www.tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com and we will see you next time you know what this didn't get very sexy did it 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 got less sexy than i thought it would but it got deeper than it I did it would. and in some ways that's sexier sexy too yeah that, i think that's sexier yeah we can we can we can get more superficial later but i think this worked yeah i was gonna like go real close like nancy allen i turned down the lights i was drinking my chardonnay <laughs> and i was gonna talk about my favorite car porn hot spots i say the carburetor I can't think of the chassis. I can't think of a sexy car for it. Like, what's a fucking... I'm thinking of the, uh, the I don't know. Uh, the exhaust pipe. No. Uh, no, that's the, that's not sexy. There has to I, be. Don't, well, I can't think of anything. Here we go. Before you get into your Ford probe, remember, <laughs> <laughs> this has been the Made for TV Mayhem show. There. Did I do it? Yes.